0: You better be listening to slezoids or I must break you. Girls swing in terror from things beyond description. My name is
1: Mike Hammer, Maris. He was out to get men who tortured women and killed with the ferocity of wild beasts.
2: トルマッティの
0: given us a couple more bangers to talk about. So I'm sure this will be a extravaganza as it always is over here. So join the sleaze.
3: That's right. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover as well. Patreon subscribers also get on our shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for five or six years. There's like 150 bonus episodes as well as 50 bonus transmissions where we talk about new release genre films, which there's always a lot, especially coming out uh, at, the, at, at this time of year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash podcast for anyone uh, interested. And speaking of which, we are going to give all of the new patrons their shout outs here we had going in order where did i lose it there we go we had uh josiah uh harsey sign up for an entire year uh, of the show in in advance because you can do that and get a little bit of a discount monthly rate if you do for anyone interested uh signing up for five dollars we had art yam uh, toplin we had solomon 3418 we had chase uh Padusniak, uh, we had Kami, we had Senior Noob Plays. Um, oh, Kami actually signed up, I wanted to shout out, for uh, an entire year of the show at the $10 a month rate. And is going to be joining us for the monthly virtual screenings, which we try to do at the last awesome. Thursday of every month. And we will have a noir-themed one this month coming up, look forward to. So thanks to oh, Kami. Yeah. There are lots uh, of fun. We had We had Quincy Markowitz sign up, we had Simon Mariah, we had uh, T. uh, Hugs. we had Seamus Turner Glennon, uh, John Ayler, David V., Benjamin Thomas, Cameron Dagg, Jack Walker, C.A.B., Valentine who signed up for an entire year of the show. Uh, We had Jack sign up, Brent sign up, uh, Riley White, and last but not least, Jack Brooks. So thanks to uh, all of you folks. Hope you are enjoying those bonus episodes and we appreciate the support. Yes, thank you very much. Um, that's the one plug for the week the other plug as always is apple Podcasts and i and spotify i almost said itunes because they changed their name uh, apple Podcasts <laughs> and spotify if you are listening on either one of those platforms uh and i i can see you listening on right right now on both those platforms i see the stats here i have all the numbers uh give us a good old rating and review over there it helps climb the ranks and find new listeners and we appreciate that support as well and the very last plug, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for our show, you can get that put on basically anything that you can think of. And you've reached the thought of a lot of a stuff. You've gotten pillows, you've gotten notebooks, you've gotten hoodies, uh, pens, uh, just posters for your place. Uh, that link is at the, uh, in the description of this episode as well as over at sleazoidspodcast.com for anyone who's interested. Uh, But that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis. And joining me also,
0: as always, my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody.
3: Welcome. I think uh, if I am correct here, two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks over on the main feed would have heard from us and we would have been kicking off another wonderful year. Of noir, Vember. Uh, we yes. move straight from the spooky season straight into sad boys in hats smoking <laughs> cigarettes and killing people and feeling bad about it. Yeah, we're either um, scared and- or sad over here. That's those are the themes. That's right. And so we we kicked off November two weeks ago with a friend of the pod, Hessa Denny of the Seeking Derangements and Movie Mindset podcast uh, with a double feature of two very underseen 1950s kind of like Turner classic movie programmers that she uh, discovered. Um, watching that channel and was kind of surprised by, it. we talked about Cy Enfield's very bleak post war, kind of like mob violence, blacklist era social message picture, The Sound of Fury, uh, which is a very sort of like desperate, on the run, sort of family man finds his way into crime movie until the last 15 minutes is like one of the most <laughs> psychotic and harrowing things you have maybe seen in a movie and based on a very,
0: very real mob lynching in San Jose. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 really underseen and I couldn't recommend it enough. Yeah.
3: So and and, and then has uh, paired that with Pat Jackson's very strange and very pulpy, uh, basically child endangerment B thriller, a kind of movie we actually have talked about a couple times on this show. If you think something like Shadow of a Doubt or something like The Window, you know, kids witnessing murders or, you know, being mm-hmm. aware of the evil world of adults. Uh, we talked about a movie called Shadow on the Wall. Uh, which was uh, a very, very strange one, and was mostly about <laughs> yeah. Anne Southern, like trying to Looney Tune style kill a child without the child knowing. It was very strange, but a, yeah. but a good time to talk about. It.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's strange just because it has such j- such dark undertones, and there is honestly some legitimately good suspense in it and everything. But then there is a little bit of undercutting of that with like a, a long scene where two children uh, fight over who's gonna drink a glass of milk that we both know is poisoned, and there's uh, it. <laughs> yeah there there's some good stuff in there i would I would recommend it as well, yeah, so you haven't heard that episode that was two weeks ago over on the main feed
3: with Hessa. It was a fun way to f- kick off the season. Uh, but last week over on the Patreon exclusively, uh, for the patrons, uh, we did a, uh, episode that I've been kind of meaning to do for a while, but bumped up in relation to the new David Fincher movie that recently dropped on Netflix called The Killer, because it is very much about a, uh, you know, a, a, a very sort of, uh, compact, very, you know, sort of focused movie on an, on an offbeat very strange hitman and there were some you know sort of like late period noirs that were very much in a similar vein that I thought about while watching it that I was like we got to do that episode so we talked about some kind of like existential hitman b-noir procedurals essentially we did Irving Lerner's um, more sort of like detached and relaxed almost like documentary approach to a transactional killer um, in in his film Murder by Contract uh, from 1958 and then we paired it with Alan Barron's uh, more kind of ruthless and dour and and almost hateful variation on a very similar protagonist in uh, Blast of Silence from 1961. But th- he also wrote, directed and starred in that thing and shot it on just like <laughs> yeah. a couple thousand dollars, essentially.
0: Yeah, it's incredibly impressive. It, it, it honestly looks really, really good for its budget, which I think was like less than 200,000 or something like that. So it was, um, yeah. It, it, the, both of those are are fantastic, and I like the the fact that they're a little different. In the, in that Murder by Contract, he's like completely detached from his emotions. And then with Blast of Silence, he's kind of wrestling with it the entire time um, and trying his yeah, best murder to by contract. He's
3: he's all like, you know, th- uh, price cutting and throat cutting. Same thing, baby. I look at it on the same wavelength. And then with Alan Barron's, it's more like, you know, he's actually trying to repress his humanity to be able to, to yeah. kind of do the job that he does. But he's failing to do so.
0: Yeah. Both great looks at it. So, um,
3: yeah. Highly recommend yeah, so those if, two. So if you're interested in that episode, that was uh, last week uh, over on the Patreon feed. Again, patreon.com slash Lee's Podcast for anyone interested. But uh, moving on to this week, we have a very special returning guest who uh, actually kind of skipped a year. We, you know, we we, it's it's been two years since since we've had them on. Um, But uh, it's also been two years since we locked this episode in because they actually locked (laughs) this episode and the picks for it while we were recording the last episode. That's how long this has been kind of sitting in our back pocket waiting to pull this one out um but that guest is uh casey uh aka manovsky article for anyone who follows them on twitter casey how
2: you doing uh, I'm doing well. Uh, Twitter is not, so I don't know how much longer I can call myself Twitter user Manovsky article. Maybe That's uh, true.
3: I mean, I'm probably ex-user. already not supposed to be calling that, right? Yeah, but I yeah. just, yeah.
2: I, <laughs> the, uh, like the movies we're going to talk about, it's kind of dying of some sort of ambient radiation. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so if and when we do another one of these, uh, I'll probably have to find something else to refer to myself by. Uh, yes. But for now, yeah, it's it's good to be here. And yes, we we locked this in two years almost to the day. Yeah, yeah you were so. here
3: last November. We did uh, Night in the City and Sweet mm. Smell of Success, which was uh, the last time. And I guess we were just such in the noir mindset that we kept talking about noirs even when we finished recording the episode. And that was when Casey was <laughs> like, I can I pick my episode like, right now? I like I already know what I want to do. Yeah,
2: That's right. And, yeah, then, I. I I usually try not to be presumptuous about, uh, you know, inviting myself on to another episode of a show, but uh, these movies demanded that. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. So, what, so, episode, so what too. So what? So what two learn. movies uh, spoke to you so much that you were like, you know, two years in the making, we're still going to be talking about this specific because I'll be honest, there are people who pick a double feature and then I come back to them two years later and I say, it's time we're doing it. And they go, I kind of want to talk about something else. Honestly, right, I have a different movie now. I'm a different person than I was two years ago, but these clearly stuck with you. So uh, mm-hmm. why? Number one and two, obviously, what are they and what made you pair them together at first?
2: Uh, well, so, uh, you know, I, I do love crime films. I love noir films. You know, I uh, and I've I've made a couple appearances at this point. So, like, you know, before I'd brought, you know, some noir movies, I'd brought a Japanese film before. Um, Tampopo, great movie. Tampopo, yes. Uh, and so last time we did this for November I kind of gave you a more traditional noir pairing. You know, like I gave you two from like the classic 50s period uh, this time. It's it's more linked by a tone and a theme. Um, so so, Kiss Me Deadly uh, from the 1950s and uh, the Japanese uh, film from 1979, The Man Who Stole the Sun, uh, which is, you know, I, I think if you want to... It's technically maybe not a noir film, but it's a movie I think absolutely belongs in the sleazoid's canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, a movie that kind of shares... A radioactive crime, <laughs> yes. Uh, angle, which uh, and they're maybe two of the strangest, bleakest crime films you'll ever see. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. No, so I was. Uh,
2: yeah, it's it's the suitcases of the apocalypse.
3: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, these are these are both movies filled with atom, atomic anxiety and basically take on an almost like surreal science fiction freak out quality, despite kind of belonging to other crime genres like Kiss Me Deadly is obviously it's doing, you know, it's a pulp paperback adaptation. It is, you know, coming out, you know, on on the heels of some of, you know, the, the, the peak noir period. And The Man Who Stole the Sun has more of that like sort of like 70s new wave neo noir almost kind of uh, that's the kind of character they've dropped into to have this kind of uh, surreal psychological experience just completely break the fabric of a crime movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's dipping its toes into a lot of genres, too. I mean, both films, in a way, are the way that, especially the way that Kiss Me Deadly evolves, um, but with the man that that stole the sun, he's he's just, like it's tonally kind of everywhere. I think it's well controlled, but um, it, it 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 was surprising in a lot of moments just where things would go. So oh, it
3: goes full trashy action movie. Yeah, it goes full yeah. like slapstick comedy in some moments. Like it is, it's all mm-hmm. over dream dream
2: like tragedy in other places, and then <laughs> yeah. like it'll immediately jump cut to a joke or something. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an experience.
3: It's crazy, yeah. but we are definitely getting into. uh, In in, we're in a post Oppenheimer world. We are getting real (laughs) nuclear and getting real anxious about it. And uh, we're gonna kick things off by starting with like one of the godfathers of nuclear anxiety film, just in general. One of the movies that literally had people calling it like the first thriller of the atomic age. I think was what some critics (laughs) called it when it came out. We're gonna kick things off with Kiss Me Deadly
0: gave him the terrifying clue he sought.
2: On this woman's lips, warm with longing, lay the shocking secret
1: of Kiss Me Deadly.
3: Right, we are talking about Kiss Me Deadly, the 1955 American film noir written, directed, and produced by Robert Aldridge, co-written by AI, uh, I actually didn't look up how to pronounce this, Bezerides, Bezerides?
2: Uh, biz- Bezerides. Mm.
3: What a sick name. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty sick. <laughs> um, uh, uh who, who together were adapting uh, the novel of the same name by legendary pulp crime novelist Mickey Spillane. The film stars Ralph Meeker as uh, Mickey Spillane's uh probably most famous character the brutish private investigator mike hammer it also co-stars albert decker paul stewart and marianne carr and yeah actually speaking of how much they advertise this as like a mickey spillane thing mickey spillane's latest h-bomb white hot thrills blood red blood red kisses this is like the (laughs) tagline on the poster
1: (laughs) (laughs) wonderful wonderful but this is our
3: this is our second time talking about robert altridge The first being his um, very tough and gritty uh, men on a mission film, The Dirty Dozen, which had an all-timer cast like Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, Cassavetes, George Kennedy, Robert Ryan, Donald Sutherland, among others, as these uh, unshaven, violent military prisoners asked to do a suicide mission, essentially essentially to commute their sentences. Um, And he is kind of known with things like Veracruz or like the original 70s Longest Yard as having a little bit of a masculine presence, except for, I would would argue, I guess, what whatever happened to baby jane
1: mm-hmm. um,
3: which yeah. is uh, maybe his his uh his his outsider um uh one in 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 that regard and i i haven't personally explored um a a, a ton of uh his like you know pre kiss me deadly stuff where he was doing like westerns and war films and you know but 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 i think i could gather from what i was reading about most of them that they did share a similar sort of commitment to psychological intensity Definitely a little bit more brutal than than other people were were willing to be, especially mm-hmm. in the 1950s. Um, and this was the time where I finally I decided to kind of like read up on on his life. And he had like a very incredible backstory where he basically was born to this like very wealthy family with connections to the Rockefellers. Um, his 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 grandfather was a U.S. senator, um, and he was studying finance because his father like basically demanded that he do that in 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 his twenties. And he dropped out of school as like a fu- right before graduating as like a fuck you to his dad that he's not getting into business. And he instead pursued relationships with like left wing artist friends, which got him literally disinherited. So he became like oh, a wow. poor man because he wasn't allowed to as part of his family's money anymore. And he instead went to work at RKO Pictures alongside guys like Orson Welles, and he worked as an assistant director for like a who's who of Jean Renoir, Louis Milestone, Charlie Chaplin, William A. Mm. Wellman, which is where maybe some of the bleakness and that grit might have come from. Um, And uh, he did a a, a bit of TV directing too before eventually landing a Western film called Apache in uh, 1954 starring Burt Lancaster, which is what proved to be a big hit for him. And for Burt Lancaster, speaking of uh, Casey's um, uh, sweet smell of success, that was the last time I think we we, we might have talked about him in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. But uh, it, it resulted in a friendship between him and Lancaster who then brought him on to Vera Cruz with him and Car- Gary Cooper as co-leads. And those two films getting financial success were enough. That was it. He was able to have the clout to produce his own projects and get full creative freedom put into his contract which is what resulted in Kiss Me Deadly. He was like the 1952 novel, uh, by Mickey Spillane, who is this former war vet turned pulp novelist? Uh, he was like, I don't want to start at the first one. I want to do the sixth one, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, in in this hard-boiled PI sort of like Mike Hammer series, uh, which uh, loosely involves sort of the the, the murder of this uh, you know beautiful and mysterious hitchhiker he comes into contact with, and the novel, which maybe Casey can give us some some backstory too, because I I didn't end mm-hmm. up reading it. Um, is uh, I, I'm pretty sure that one's supposed to be about like some sort of like mob. A conspiracy, a drug conspiracy, or something like that?
2: Yeah, so the important thing here is that uh, Bizarides was given the novel to adapt, did not like the novel. Yes. Uh, so so he took a lot of the names and sort of a loose flow from it uh, his quote then,
3: did you he just quote his quote is so funny where he was like <laughs> I wrote it fast because I had contempt for it it was automatic <laughs> writing things were in the air at the time and I just decided to put them in and that was what resulted in him being like it's not New York anymore it's Los Angeles or like you know there's no more voiceover There, you know all these various things and apparently Spillane fucking hated his guts
2: I was
0: just gonna say that it, Yeah, yeah. There,
2: there, there is a documentary about ai bizarrites where spillane and Bizarrites are both talking about each other and they just keep <laughs> cutting to them going like i hate that fucking script you know like I, he's, he's like that novel was garbage so uh
0: oh my god that's so yeah funny. it's
2: um but critically uh, the most important difference between this and it's very funny that the poster advertises this as mickey spillane's latest h-bomb uh there were no atomic elements in the novel yes oh, um, so
3: now that I it, like, heard was an MPAA thing, too, was that the MPAA was really distressed reading the script at how much like realistic the violence was. And they said mm-hmm. and that it was very American violence. And I think they said, mm-hmm. could you make it like about like communist spies or something like <laughs>
0: <laughs> and not the government <laughs> torturing
3: people? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that was there. I that was that made the MPAA a little bit happier.
2: <laughs> well, I, I, and so uh, uh, one of the things Misery said was like one of the few scenes that grabbed him was a scene involving lockers, but the 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 thing in the lockers was just a you know a box of uh, dope, like it was just drugs, right? Yeah. Right.
1: Uh,
2: and and he he was like, oh, that's not very exciting. So I thought, was everybody thinking about? Oh, they're thinking about you know uh, the the A bomb. So that's what I wanted to put in there. You know, so yeah. like the, and, and honestly, that that one change. Adds so much
0: to this movie, and oh, it it
3: destabilizes the movie. Like it totally changes the character, everything that he's reckoning with. Yeah, for sure. I think
0: also just how in depth he goes. He just keeps going so deep into the rabbit hole. I don't know if I've seen a noir yet where he talks to this many people. Like it's just him going from place to place, person to person. And after a certain point, your brain just starts to go like, this has to be massive something that i could not just come up with you know there's got to be something really deep to this mystery and then we'll get to it of course but the the reveal i think is worth uh all of all of this weight and and honestly a true shock if you don't know what's coming and uh mm-hmm. yeah i just i think i think really sinking into his his journey beforehand uh is is crucial. I, if it was just drugs, I'd be like, okay, well, you know, it's it's a noir. I kind yeah. of <laughs> expect that, but you know, it, it, it's it just feels like it needs to be larger. And no, it it, and it, it, is. it
3: it creates a much more fatalistic atmosphere for it, yeah. where it is like, you know, you've seen this kind of character go on this type of investigation, but at the end of that investigation, does the world explode?
1: You know, <laughs> right, exactly. probably not,
3: and. It, and 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 to bring that into the actual genre depiction itself is 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 amazing because as we've mentioned, you know, you know, uh, Mickey Spillane series uh, at the time incredibly popular. Um, yes. I, I, I think I read a figure in Jay Hoberman's um, uh, write up on the film that at a certain point in the 1950s, Mickey Spillane was responsible for seven out of um, ten of the American bestsellers of all time. Um, so this character. A very, very big uh, character of the first novel was called Eye of the Jury, which at some point we'll have to talk about Larry Cohen adapting that screenplay in 1982, because I think that movie's actually quite underrated and quite good too. Um, but, but, but Spillane was even known himself like Aldridge for having a pretty severe level of sex and violence for the, the genre in, in, in his books, including torture. Um, and, and he was, um, you know, uh, he could be, um, you know, unusually kind of unromantic about the uh, protagonist. Okay. Um, I was going to ask be... is there
0: something so, like that, that theme pops up over and over again with this character where it usually there's like a kind of a charm, and, the uh, movie like takes swab. it even
3: a step further, I'll be honest. But the mm. character himself, I would say, like, because I've, I've read a couple Splains, and the characters are pretty openly sadistic and gotcha. kind of oh, psychologically yeah. un, un, unwell at times. And you're kind of welcomed into that perspective as, as a reader. Now, sometimes he can be a little bit more fantasy esque with that. Like, he can be, mm-hmm. he'll admit this is a very vengeful, brutish character, but he'll do so in like a proto kind of like dirty, hairy, vigilante way or in like a Bond esque, like womanizer kind of way, like right like down still to a hero you know, in
0: some regard,
3: savagely strong arming, like anti-com, you know, this like yeah. anti-communist kind of fantasy. And, and, and Aldrich himself said that he didn't like the character and, and, uh, and as, 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 well, because it was, you know, I think they called him like this very like cynical kind of fascist character. And he was more mm. of a degenerate animal than noble gumshoe. And I think to Spillane's credit, Spillane had some knowledge of that, Um, I think that they really leaned into that in this to make a point that they were kind of criticizing the character or maybe criticizing the material a little bit more but I recently picked up one of his Bond espionage knockoff um, uh, pulp paperbacks uh, the Tiger Man series Um, and like the opening chapter of that book is Tiger Man having you know finding out that he has like a tail on him and finding out that it's like a female tail and he suddenly like turns on her by surprise and he whips a gun out and before even talking to her um or like you know finding out what's happening in like this like snarling style of voiceover you see him think about putting a bullet in her spine to deliberately paralyze her
1: oh Jesus um,
3: so yeah. and, and, and like that's the opening chapter of the introduction to this to this character. And when yeah. characters in a Spillane novel are not like, you know, thinking of hurting women, if they viewing them as annoyances or tools or playthings. We'll get a little bit in, in, in into that with the my camera character here. Definitely. But you know, Spillane definitely had a very sort of hard edge to his pulp novels. And in this case, you know, you could see that Aldridge, uh, very much saw that he, he had that quality, but he was also still a fantasy. And he was like, yeah. you know, yeah. what if I took this character? I view as like an amoral, dirty, hairy, and I just made him just like the nat like he's not like a noble or a tragic noir protagonist like you might normally see in like a Humphrey Bogart character. What if right. he was just drunken and sadistic and confused and kind of stupid and actually doesn't solve the case? He just blows the world up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So do you think like Spillane kind of uses his characters as these they're they're rough around the edges, you know, they're imperfect, like far from the ideal human being, but it's almost like that that toughness and power is necessary the world's the job so done. ugly we kind of need them yeah, you know yeah. <laughs> whereas whereas Aldrich was was more like no he's just adding to the to the chaos and destruction that kind of thing exactly okay 100 right. yeah uh, I think that's how they uh, kind of separated them
2: Spillane also infamously is one of the few uh writers in Pulp Fiction that ever played his own character mm. uh, oh, so, I don't know so if he, I knew he, that he he does play Mike Hammer in an adaptation of the book The Girl Hunters in the 60s oh.
0: Wow, that'd um, be interesting. Weird. <laughs> uh,
2: I have never, I have never seen it, but that is, a, that is a fact. that I'm aware of. Also, he was, uh, he played a victim in Colombo in the episode Publisher Parish. He's a writer who gets, uh, who gets killed in the opening <laughs> sequence. So <laughs> that's cool. That's uh, but yeah, awesome. uh, the main, the main thing. Uh, and honestly, this even this feels outdated at this point. But like the main thing Spillane's remembered for now is this movie, which he didn't careful <laughs> yeah and and uh for uh being a huge influence on the comic book artist frank miller which you can really really tell with uh sin city yeah yes sin yeah, city totally. is a <laughs> huge spillane tribute
3: yeah yeah but this is yeah this is for for me um i you know people who have maybe been following me for a while i i Got to do the sight and sound uh, nominate ten favorite movies of all time, and I put this movie on my list on there because I ne- I wanted a noir, I needed a noir, and part of my reasoning was that this is one of my you know all time favorite movies. Um, but number two is I was kind of like I when I was, was got down to the last couple noirs that I wanted to do, I was thinking about like what are the movies that I feel like kind of represent the noir in a way, and I I ended up thinking because because part of me wanted to put in a lonely place because I'm like it's not even really that it, it is but you know it's like it's controversially a, a, a noir it's like just a really sad <laughs> breakup movie about a screenwriter um, more ultimately <laughs> um, you know it, it doesn't have the dames it doesn't have the guns doesn't have the you know quite the conspiracy I mean it's got a, the, the murder mystery aspect to it but either right. way th- this, this is the one where I kind of went this is the movie that is reckoning it came out late enough after the noir's popularity to reckon with the genre itself Yeah. Um, and also came out late enough after Uh, like into the Cold War where they could really, really translate the anxiety and the paranoia which already exists in the genre mm-hmm. um, and Definitely. just really emphasize that stylistically and that's maybe my favorite quality of this is Aldred's you know sort of the visual sensibility the way that this just drops you into things the way that you really feel the second you enter this movie that this is like a scary world of secrets and surveillance and creepily faceless just like things around you that you don't under understand and the only response to that in that the noir has is a character who is like this smirking, cold blooded hero, um, who, who can you know navigate that world and he's good at navigating that world, but only in the sense that <laughs> he is uh, he's he's made for it. That you know, he mm-hmm. he he likes it, he finds violently dispatching people or torturing people or you know, uh, pleasuring himself in in some capacity is more of the method than than uh, anything else which I think is really, really well um, focused on on this. And part of what got it like really upset people about it, that this this film was, you know, originally, you know, early drafts of it were rejected by the MPAA because of how ruthless and kind of ugly it was, how much it really emphasized that the noir hero is like a guy who just likes killing people and the pile of corpses isn't actually uncovering anything. Um, So the MPAA was really upset about that um, to the point where Aldrich had to to publicly like defend him In like an essay um, where where he he had to basically kind of take on like a peck and paw esque philosophy that he was like, you know, we shouldn't shave off the edges or repress ourselves that we should be. We should be forced to kind of stare at and look at our own capability of being monsters or kind of being animals and like especially our our heroes who are supposedly doing our ideological fantasy bidding on screen. And so that was clearly his intent with this character was like everyone really Reads my camera novels, and they kind of pick up implicitly some of his attitudes, I guess you could say. And so here yeah. was the movie where they just laid bare every single one of those attitudes. You know, taking the you know most popular pulp paperback representation of it, and then playfully looking kind of towards um, the future of the genre. French critics like famously called this film the thriller of tomorrow. Partially because it was felt partially sci-fi and that aspect of it is uh, of it as well. But 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 also because, you know, that it it leans so far into being an ugly and disturbing view of the noir genre that it really does take on a sci-fi horror, uh, you know, sort of quality to it um Mm -hmm. and as a result inspired you know the 60s new wave guys the grim 70s neo-noir guys you could argue the 90s like borderline horror noir guys like i mean our patrons you know no offense to you casey our patrons tried to nominate this and we didn't let them because we were like this is casey's episode you know we this is his episode
2: this is why i locked this down two years ago because i knew a lot of people would come to you with this one. So. And 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 they
3: wanted us to do Lost Highway, which speaks to me as something like something that definitely like Lost Highway is almost practically like a, you know, quasi, you know, reimagining. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like the, there's there's so much in here in the fabric of, you know, he's clearly a adapting so much of what came before him and looking forward to what would actually be like the next at least 50 years of this genre, which to me is like, you know, a marker of a like
0: exceptional um, uh, movie. Yeah, the uh, like, well, one thing that stood out to me right away was the uh, the violence. Now, obviously, they can't you know, they can't outright show a lot of the, the, the impacts of things and, and stuff like that. But what he always would do, it seems, is show the aftermath in incredibly, like, just, just really horrific detail. Um, and uh, a lot of the time, too, just speaking on Mike Hammer's character... He's presented a lot of the time as someone that you should be afraid of. The, the One of the first scenes that you see For sure. um, when he involves himself with the, the goons and um, uh, kind of a higher up, I think his name is Carl, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, uh, he, he sends his two goons after him and right away the one guy just gets smacked down and knocked out and the other just backs away completely scared. And, and he's, scared. <laughs> <Yeah>. he's scared. <laughs> you yeah. can see the fear in his eyes. And, um, the, even after like, uh, the, uh, a later scene, they're kind of more prepared for him because they know how tough he is. And it's just interesting to watch him be more of the powerful figure that also isn't, you know, Like you said, I think you said it earlier, it's not very... Sophisticated, at least the way he goes about doing things. So a lot of the time he's just like, he bribes somebody for information and then the moment they say no, he just starts smacking them around. That's pretty much his his plan with every single interrogation that he interacts with. Yeah, Jay
3: Hoberman called him, and I completely agree for anyone who has the Criterion release of the film in the essay included in there, he called him one of the sleaziest, stupidest, most brutal detectives in American movie history.
0: Yeah, he is. He totally is. He's just what it, it seems to me like, and and again, um, you're more well versed in in the genre. But it seemed to me like they were just every little undertone that all of these have with kind of the sleaziness of these detectives. It's always still presented in a way that's still kind of cool, you know, still kind of like oh, this guy is is suave. Um, but with this, it's just blunt force, and it, it, it's kind of just showing you without any mask like what the genre really is so it's it's very cool yeah, to watch well,
3: yeah, and, and doing that and also being like showing how unproductive it actually is that <laughs> sure, he is yeah. just actually <laughs> contributing to the pile of corpses he's not actually right. figuring anything out he he ends the movie as confused as he basically <laughs> starts it but he's just like created carnage in, in his yeah. wake the, the entire time and yeah so it really takes this to a degree of like here's this very sort of like outmoded very kind of impulsive character and now sit with him and experience what he experiences which is definitely I think what people kind of found upsetting about it but what makes it so many years later like such an amazing experience because this is one of those movies that I kind of put it up there with Texas Chainsaw Massacre as like it's a it's a very pure version of you know the the kind of genre movie that it is mm-hmm. and it also just starts there, yeah. You don't really feel Literally. like there was like a beginning. you just like you just dropped into this thing and you hit the ground running. And in this case, yeah, it, it, it it's quite literal. It is a woman, Christina, played by Cloris uh, Leachman from uh, Butch Cassidy and Last Picture Show. And we immediately pick up with her on a highway. She's scared, barefoot, running in the middle of a highway, basically like naked in a trench coat, willing to throw herself in front of a vehicle to try and get noticed. And she just happens to throw herself in front of Mike. Hammer played by Ralph Meeker from Paths of Glory and from uh, the Dirty Dozen as well. Actually, now that I think about it and um, who, who definitely has a very kind of muscly kind of like animal quality to it. I think I read that he replaced Brando at one point in A Streetcar Named Desire. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, like that's the kind of quality that that he has. And I love that when he swerves his car out of the way to not hit her because she's trying to hitchhike. Um, he's just he's really annoyed that he had to do it and he's, he's literally <laughs> like man I should have just fucking ran her over because now I'm starting to struggle my Jaguar and you yeah. know I, it, it, she's slowly walking over and he just looks like pissed off that she has time to get in that he can't just keep driving away it's hilarious and, too
0: to know that like we know now he's a you know a private investigator his job is at least partially to help people you know what I mean and although in, the in, in this case somebody,
3: what they do in the writing is they make him not even a PI they make him a, what do they, well, he, he's he's still sort of
0: without a gun license and, and things like that. Right. Well, and and they also make him an investigator
3: of, um. Divorce. Like, cases. Like a, like a, divorce cases, that's what it oh, is, right? Yeah, so and, he, he, and not he, only
0: that, he sets them up so that they get yeah. like more mad at each other, so the case gets worse and there's more money. Yeah, to it's literally it just and, a yeah.
3: seduction entrapment like routine. <laughs> like it's not yeah. a, he's not actually like a cool right. like I'm I'm solving mysteries and helping people at all. He's actually just like ruining marriages and getting paid for it, essentially. Like deliberately. Artist, basically. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, his his assistant Velda, uh who we'll meet later, if she's her yeah, her whole game is just that she'll call people up and uh, just kind of give them the sexy phone voice and seduce them <laughs> over time, and then yeah, he just collects.
3: Yeah, so, so yeah. it's 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 so good. But but the it really is like for me right off the bat, it's the mood of it. It's Nat mm-hmm. King Cole like romantically yeah. lonely, cooing the his his way through like I'd rather have the blues than what I've got over the very strange like dreamy credits flow. That yes. moves past and, you while she Cloris- like cries and whimpers in the car, and he says nothing. And the nothing. titles just flow by backwards in this way that the world feels disoriented already, so that the title and, l- like looks like it reads "Deadly Kiss Me."
0: <laughs> yeah, and and you feel also like you're in this because they're in the on the highway at night. Um, and they're using, I'm assuming, like projection for the things. It actually looks really real just because there's such a lack of light, but it also just looks like they're driving through a black void. and it's it's a very just creepy image. And even when she's running out of it, once again, because all you can see is the light with the road and her, um it just feels like she's really nowhere. and i and I love being thrown into that right away. Um, That's the last highway, baby. Yeah, and totally.
2: It's so striking, too, that you're paying for the Nat King Cole song, but you're having Cloris Leachman loudly pant yes. over the entire thing, like, just gasping for air yeah. uh, during the entire credit roll. And, it, yeah, it is so unsettling.
0: And even just after. the incredible choice. Yeah, and even after, you know, they start. Conversing, he right away shows his character. Like there's no there's no lead up to it. He's already kind of threatening her to like, you know, I should have left you back there, I should have just tossed you off the cliff and things like that. Like it's just
3: well, my favorite detail of that is I might still do it. I might literally, literally drive like back it. there and throw you off the cliff just because you're fucking
0: annoying me. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Like, oh my and god, she, this is who and we're gonna She be
2: immediately with. She immediately pegs him for exactly who he is, too. She's like, oh, you're the Mm kind of guy that does push-ups to keep a firm belly, but, like, that's just for you. (laughs) It's not for anybody else. Yeah, you
3: just, you just want to be, like, rough and hard. She's like, I'd actually prefer some flab if it meant that you were, like, you know, friendlier. friendlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, There's a they have a great conversation, and it's a very, you know, how much it's emphasized with just, like, you know, you're locked into driving in the car with them. I love the point-of-view shots of the camera attached to the back of the car. Very much inspired Godard for something like Breathless. Uh, obviously, this whole thing is only lit basically by, like, headlight spotlight lights, which is, you know, yeah. creates an atmosphere um, uh, to it. And it's, it's, it's very clear right off the start that this, you know, woman's in a very dangerous situation. This guy kind of found his way into it. And, you know, she, uh, he also finds out through sort of like picking up on, on some details that she has escaped from a local sort of like mental asylum where she was being held prisoner. And, uh, she does like basically like beg him to like, you know, uh, for, for, uh, to, you know, pretend to um, be in a relationship with her so that they can drive by this police roadblock and 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 everything like that. And and uh, that he,
2: and that moment where he lies to the cops is one of the only times in the entire movie that he looks almost charming for half a second.
3: Yes, <laughs> when he's pretending because he's used to for his divorce job.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, it is. It, it can is be interesting. charming when he puts it on. It is interesting to see. Most of the time, you get. Like there's there's those those rare moments, but a lot of the time it's just implied that he has this uh, this kind of charisma and everything because the moment he's thrown into this, I don't know case quote unquote is um, it, 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 he completely uh, takes off the mask in any way shape or form. Every interaction is just blatantly from Mike Hammer. Um, yeah, and uh, I found that interesting that they don't even really. Bother a lot of the time anyway, doing like a back and forth depending on who he's talking to. He really is just charmless throughout a lot of the time.
3: No, he he totally. I mean, like the character namesake, like he 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 hammers his way through this movie. He, <laughs> every interaction he gets to. I mean, she pegs him immediately. She's like, "You're the person who never gives in a relationship. You only take." Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that's definitely you know the the kind of attitude that he has. But but she does say something um to him, which is that you know she just wants a ride to the bus stop. Just get me the bus stop that's all that matters um and if you get me there you can forget all of this happened this is not and this is an unimportant situation to you i can tell you want out of it but if we don't make it to the bus stop Remember me which is like a a very sort of tragic bit of lyricism before the horror that essentially haunts the rest of the movie and you know triggers the entire sequence where you have this like gang of unseen men in these ominous shots of their car pull up in front of them uh, on the highway so they have to come to a stop and they basically trigger a sort of crash and Mm -hmm. through a bunch of like really really perceptive and sharp um, you know choices in composition and in in editing it's just Christina screams all of a sudden we are lifted and this horrible image of her sort of like dangling feet and sounds of her screaming in a room um, sort of lead us to kind of put two and two together that they've taken them to some like remote house and they are essentially torturing her to death in these like hazy point of view shots of like a barely conscious Mike who is like confused and over overwhelmed and been knocked unconscious and he's not sure exactly what's happening he's not able to see who is doing this or and it's just it, tonally, it's fucking crazy that you were just in this like you know this sudden hitchhiking scenario you see like what would maybe be the start of like a noir meet cute kind of thing I guess right. and then bam she's tortured to death he's thrown in a car with her and they are both their cars like thrown down a cliff to kill them both by just anonymous people in the first like <laughs> yeah. five minutes of the
2: movie <laughs> And this is why I'm glad you made the comparison to Texas Chainsaw Massacre earlier, because I think just like in Texas Chainsaw, the the violence you feel is on screen is... Not as violent as it actually looks. Like it, oh, one hundred
3: percent. Aldridge a, a, in his essay says that I thought we were kind of tasteful, honestly, when he <laughs> w- when he wrote his essay in terms of like choosing what to show and what not to yeah, show. But it totally feels icky, right? Yeah. you yes. get well, why people responded the way they did.
2: Yeah, the sound and the frenzy and her screaming and just seeing the dangling legs and not actually seeing yeah. the torture they're inflicting while Mike groggily tries to make sense of any of it.
0: Like yeah, yeah. It, your brain does, it does it is, the rest. <laughs>
2: It is so much more violent than anything they could have possibly shot in 1952.
0: Yeah, like it, I th- and I think and the, it makes it memorable. And I think the ominous nature, too, of that, like the shot before her legs is is the the shot of like the the well-kept man's legs, like with the, the really nice shoes and the the perfectly, yeah. you know, iron pants and the everything striped like pants. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so so it, it, it has this sense of like a, a higher power or official, uh, like even government officials, something like that. And then to do the fade into her legs and then into the screaming, like these are the people that are doing it, is such a creepy and and uh, like just the implication, violent shot. It's it's really yeah. quite amazing. And the legs shot that happens too. over and over again. It's kind of this thing yeah. like you know something is about to go down when these people show up, but you never see their faces until some of them, I guess, the end. But um, and then later on, there's a really cool shot where. Mike starts to get really into the headspace of just like we've already seen him be kind of charmless and blunt, but he just goes further and further as the movie goes on, to the point where they start to give his feet those same shots of like him approaching somebody and, and implying that he's gonna be incredibly violent to them. So it's uh it's a really cool setup.
3: Yeah, it's it's kind of taking the human factor out of it a little bit where it's just mm-hmm. like, here's just this force that's coming for you and you don't know what it is. It's it's yeah. it's, you know, it's in the shadows a little bit. And my my favorite, um, uh, like really grim detail of when they also they're they're torturing um, Christina is the line where they go, you know, they've tortured her into being like unconscious and they say, don't revive her. You'll be like unnaturally raising the dead. Oh, um, yeah. And and then obviously Mike survives that whole altercation. So it almost feels like the rest of the movie is almost like Night of the Living Dead style It's meant to be like this is the point of view of like a walking corpse for the rest of the movie where it's just like, you know, he was supposed to die in that cliff accident. But now the spirit he, uh, of
2: vengeance is back. <laughs> and that's yeah.
3: right. He wakes up in the hospital a few days later to his uh, secretary slash investigative partner slash girlfriend partner in um, his uh, divorce PI firm. Uh, I do like that they call him the bedroom dick, uh, which is <laughs> just a great a great term for him. But it's it's Velda, as Casey already referred to, played by Maxine Cooper, who's also actually in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Um, and I, I I like too that um, she like immediately you can kind of pick up the sort of. The vibe of the relationship that they have, because she, she, you know, kisses him, and she, throughout a lot of the film, she tries to gain his affection and gain a lot of his attention, and he just completely blows her off beyond yeah. beyond her practical use as either like a bait or like an investigative tool or a sexual tool or all three combined together
0: in 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 some I think, capacity. I think the saddest part of that performance too is that he doesn't play it off like he's consciously even doing it he just doesn't care at all like she doesn't even seem to cross his mind it's completely passive and that I think is even sadder than him honestly like actively making choices throughout their relationship he's just, like he's so detached from her it's it's very yeah because, because
3: at, at first you think he's quite happy to see her like that low angle sure, shot yeah. canted shot of her looking um d- d- down at, at him and that little sort of like cute moment they have where you know he's like you know you're never around when I need you and she's like you never need me when I'm around you know like it's, a, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of a great little sort of like noir dynamic that these two characters have but it does just get kind of you know you feel like he's supposed to give way a little bit over the course of the movie he should soften up to you know uh maxine uh and the the performance that she's giving but he just never does like he is very firm in everything that he he does he has contempt for like everyone around him the lawmen interviewing him absolutely fucking hate his
0: guts you know they were they were like you know such a piece of shit
3: Yeah, they literally explain his racket to him, to his face. They're like, So, yeah, so you seduce together, you two like seduce and then bleed husbands and wives for money. Um, And and, and at one point, they're like, Open up a window. We got a real stinker in here. This guy's a fucking, you know, he smells,
0: he's filthy. (laughs) Yeah, and it does feel like the first time he's ever had to have someone just bring the mirror up to his face and be like, This is you. Like, this is what you do for a living. And I think, like, he gets. Really upset about it in a way like he, he actually kind of uh, reacts angrily and, and a little. I mean, it's not like he has any control a lot of the time in this movie in general, but um, you can tell that there's kind of like this uh, emotional reaction to it. Like he, he kind of knows he's a piece of shit and doesn't really like it, but never admits it at all. Um, well,
3: and, and, and also like the idea that the lawmen get to, you know, pretend that they're better than him because they're investigating something serious, like the murder of a sure. woman. And he's like, I could do that. Yeah. So that, that literally yeah. is what basically triggers him being <laughs> yeah, like, well, I'm going to, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to give you any information about the dead girl. But she must have been involved in something big. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get that that payday. I'm going to s- satisfy this sort of curious side of myself. Even he says that even to his police officer friend, Pat uh, Murphy, in the film played by Wesley Addy from uh, Network and from Seconds. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and who, who warns him, he's like, you know, if you take the law into your own hands, you might as well be living in a jungle. And Mm -hmm. as a result, too, he's he's upset that Mike wants to do this uh, on his lonesome. So that's when, as Jamie mentioned, the uh, he gets his P.I. license revoked, he gets his gun permit uh, take taken away. And uh, yeah, he, he, he's literally trying to turn him into, you know, they're they're trying to emasculate him or take away these things that make him powerful. And he's like, I don't fucking give a shit. He's like, I could just use my fists. I could just storm around town and punch everybody
0: to death, which functionally is what he does. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I do like the one sense of uh, the one scene where it's. Very obvious that he's nervous and fearful when he's like looking through his apartment, and you know every single corner he's taking as slowly as he possibly can. It's, yeah, it's what one an the, apartment, by the way. Yeah, it is pretty sweet. <laughs> it's, um, but it is. It's, one got, of the rare it's got one
2: of the first wall-mounted uh, answering machines in a movie. Hell
0: yeah, yeah. dude! It's, so, it's such a crazy device. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting watching him be kind of more cautious and nervous and honestly scared for a little while because after a certain point, um, he just becomes like a bullet. yeah like 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 early on
3: something is off like he he knows that he has been kind of threatened right like the fact that he was driving his car suddenly he was attacked and almost killed and so you know he he is scoping out his apartment like he's scoping out like a hostile suspect or something like that expecting that there might be someone there but i i do like too that he's being more cautious but in the same way that like a blind you know, like, you know, just brute kind of like lurches around through this network. Like he totally. does functionally act like a sledgehammer and he's like, I don't really need, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't need a gun. You know, I'll, I'm just, you know, he's, he's, I'm he's Mike just this, hammer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He's like, he's just this clumsy detective who is just like, you know, told at every step with every sign to turn back and refuse, uh, at, at a huge cost to everyone around him. And he's like, no, I'm going to pursue this anyway. I love Velda's warning to him too. Thread leads to string, uh, 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 string leads to a rope that you'll hang from the neck by <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs>
3: which and, and really she's good. like to, she 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 totally right like she you know she delivers that in a scene where she's like sweaty and dancing around her room with all this sexual energy but she's being like dude you're going to fucking like there is no there's no upside to this like well, why are you just deciding that you are going to you know investigate what this obviously this massive and dangerous thing and the camera does actually start to like move and kind of crane around like he's you know, being followed or watched on like every dark street filled with shadows and kind of footsteps like that scene where he's suddenly attacked by that uh, like unknown assailant with a knife um great Mm. detail mike hammer uh i was writing notes down buy a thing of popcorn on the street if there's a midnight guy (laughs) selling popcorn buy from him you can throw it in the dude's face which will disarm his (laughs) knife and then you can just bash his head against a brick wall and viciously punch him down multiple flights of
0: stairs almost like the staircase from the exorcist yeah Um, we also these are these are mike hammer weapons method (laughs) yeah 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 we learned that method in surviving as weapons as well. So it's, That's it's locked in, you know? Yeah. And that, that <laughs> look of just defense.
3: smug satisfaction on his face is just so revealing about his character when he dishes out violence in this film.
2: He oh, smiles. Yeah. On, there's a cutaway to a smile almost every time he hurts somebody. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: He is such a brute. It's it's honestly, I've I haven't uh, really come across a character in in this genre that's so blatantly like this, uh, and it, it's it's a treat in a way.
2: <laughs> and and he is not haunted or tortured by his violence right. at all. Like no, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. this does, he learns the nothing. violence does not weigh on him. Yeah, no, all <laughs> it weighs on him is that oh, well, maybe someone's gonna do some violence back to me. If that just means I get to do more violence, that's fine.
0: Yeah, yeah. If anything, he's just he's yearning for it. He wants it. Yeah. No well and
3: and and so much of this does follow like the the you know some of the tropes that you would expect in kind of a you know a, a, a noir story. I like to kind of describe it as it feels like Aldrich was trying to like make a movie that resembles kind of like a half remembered like unstable noir they're like if Mm -hmm. you threw one on you'd be like yeah this is kind of the plot of a noir right like he just you know he he goes to this person he talks to them like obviously he obviously you know he he wants to go to um the christina's apartment where he's going to go and you know maybe talk to the roommate but what if that scene is like filmed through this like high angle like victorian archway that makes him look like he's hunting like some sort of like ancient evil of some kind (laughs) um (laughs) you know or um When he when he goes inside, it's like, oh, yeah, she loved listening to like the classical music like radio station. And but it's used as like diegetic music for him while he's walking around, like making him feel like he's in this like weird universe and stuff. And yeah, Yeah. there's just there's there's so much um, to this that is, you know, meant to be familiar, but also like just completely haunting in a way that you haven't seen before in terms of atmosphere and just like pure ominous you know decision making with the camera and with the soundscape.
2: Mm -hmm. mike mike hammer is he's like a shark you know he's he's moving through all of the noir expected noir motions but like that you you never get the sense that he has any interiority he doesn't seem to have any like reflection on anything no it's just he he is just moving through the expected things it's it's like if someone made like a you know like an 80s style action movie, but like you were deliberately not meant to cheer for the guy in any way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a very unusual tone, but it works perfectly.
3: Yeah, it does. It, it feels like the nightmarish uh, merry go round that Christina's roommate describes that uh, that Christina was on. She was like, yeah, she just you know she just she got going and it, it just wouldn't stop. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> That's the end of the story.
0: <laughs> what's interesting too is like this is when he starts to go from you know place to place and interrogate people. And and anytime he interacts with a woman, um, at least initially, it 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 almost appears like just every single woman is unbelievably attracted to this just just blunt, unsophisticated man. Um and then as these things get, you know, as more context is revealed to you 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 start to see that all of those women are either in like like it's either deceptive themselves because they have other motivations um, it's, uh, it's, it's due to the kind of their circumstance because one of them, when he arrives at like a, a mansion with the, the guy with the goons, Carl, I believe that we were talking about earlier. Yes. Um, Mr. she, Gangster she just in a, like, cost,
3: in a lacoste polo, which I yeah. think is a great detail. He meets yeah.
2: a woman named Friday because she was born on a Friday.
0: Yeah. <laughs> There's so many hilarious details like that in this. <laughs> and instantly she's like hitting on him and kissing on him and he's just like, okay, sweet, let's go. Um, which also is you know very scummy, just given the context that we see him with with Velda. Um, but then even with that woman, it's revealed that you know it's just given it's it's only happening because of her circumstance. She is completely detached from from Carl and this kind of weird like twin girlfriend thing that he's got going on um and uh and the only one that truly cares about him is Belda and she just you know she just gets passed on to the side by him all the time so i found that interesting like he almost sees himself as this ladies man but the the only people that really interact with him or give him attention besides Belda are just really deceptive about it just the, just as deceptive as he is yeah
3: well and 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 he does seem to be like kind of like aware of his community but again just really uncaring about it which is the thing that always every time i rewatch this and it makes me feel i I feel like i pay attention to some of the side stories that take place um in in this movie that that feel really because obviously the first time you watch it it really is like you know oh my god he's getting a mysterious phone call and the voice is you know telling him you know forget what you saw you know don't you know don't stop stop looking into this and then Mm -hmm. like the next day there's like dynamite planted in his car and you're like oh fuck you know like that's that that, you know so the movie works in that way where like if you were reading a very fast paced Mickey Spillane mystery you're going to have, you know, it it gives you that. And I think that was what Aldrich always tried to say was that, you know, we tried to make something that was both faithful to those thrills, but also was kind of saying something with them. And the stuff that I find feeling that make me feel in this movie when I rewatch it is like his sweet, like garage buddy, Nick, the va va voom guy (laughs) or, or, or the, or the small bit about the two bit, like boxing trainer, Eddie. Uh, Played by uh, Juano Hernandez from Lumet's The Prawn Broker, um, who, you know, he. A lot of implications of
0: corruption there.
3: yeah and 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 also the the fucking opera singer guy who he snaps his record in front of his face like it's just oh, he's, yeah. he's so he's so cruel to almost like every single person who who he he comes to and even the people who are really kind and helpful to him like his you know his his buddy who works at the garage ends up meeting like a really really horrible fate where in that case he's uh violently crushed by one of the gangsters sort of like hired goons or killers by dropping the uh, tamper with the Jack um, that's holding up the car that he's working on. So it literally falls on him and kills him. And Mm -hmm. like, it is just a case of, you know, he is actually going around getting these people killed by tugging at this thread consistently scene by scene. He's just going, you know, and he has no other reason to do this. Like he, he wants to say that he's doing it for the noir reason of a woman was hurt. I have to know why that can't happen again. You know, like that would be the kind of thing that you would normally drive a noir character in this, it really doesn't feel like he cared that much about Christina. It really it really does feel like maybe he felt a little emasculated about how he was treated and he kinda wants to hit somebody back. That's like maybe the most mm-hmm. logical conclusion you can kinda take from why he is pursuing all of these sort of like stories and these things that he's hearing, because he really doesn't find the gangster stuff until he starts getting suspicious of the quote unquote, like traffic accidents that all happened on the same night um, right. that of, of, of him where he was like, oh yeah, there were other two, there were other people killed. There was like a scientist killed. Um, and that's when he runs into the gangster Carl played by Paul Stewart from Citizen Kane and, and in cold blood um, and uh, his two high, goons uh charlie and uh suge or sugar small house which is kind <laughs> That's a fun so name awesome. <laughs> amazing name. great name <laughs> 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 um Yeah, but 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 also that's what gives this movie. It's kind of interesting look because, again, they moved this deliberately from New York to L.A. And just even Mm. seeing like the noir detective, like not in like a shadowy gutter, but like walking up to like a wealthy like Beverly Hills mansion and beating the shit out of the guy's goons there. Like that's kind (laughs) of a, you know, an odd and sort of striking
0: image as well. Yeah, I also think it's just a funny thought that he beat them up and then still proceeded. He didn't leave. He just continues to look throughout the house until Carl <laughs> yeah. shows up and is like, "Okay, man, I guess we'll talk." Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna, thought, we're gonna we're gonna have a conversation. Man. <laughs> it's just so funny. Like his strategy is just nothing but physicality, and even after that, he's like, "All right, well, I, I took care of that. Uh, continue the search."
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it's and, and, so and the conversation with Carl is great, where he's like. Um, you don't, you don't know what you're looking. like, you, he's like, Oh, you literally don't know what you're looking for. You know, mm-hmm. like you don't, what do you yeah. like? And he, I think he says, it before, he's like, you know, you're just looking for trouble. That's it. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Well, and the only clue he gets from everyone is repeatedly, Hey man, uh, they told me they'd kill me if I told you anything. So just let this go. Yeah. Just get, walk away. Every single
0: person. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the uh, the, the coach uh, for for boxing. He said something like he's like I can I can top whatever they're whatever they're you know buying you for and he's like you can't top it. They said they'd let me breathe. <laughs> so <Yeah>. you can't <laughs> really a great line. top it. Yeah
2: <laughs> and And one one scene in particular that plays as such a beautiful parody, almost of Pulp Fiction, is uh, is a scene involving Nick where he gets him to remove a bomb from his car before he starts it, drives a little bit up the road, then has him get out and remove a second bomb. Oh (laughs) yes, (laughs) it's It's like like there's there's always another one. Plot, yeah,
0: yeah. It was interesting, um, just given the uh, some of the film references uh, from films that I'm aware of in the more modern age. Like Under the Silver Lake was obviously inspired by this. Uh, oh yeah, and um, and then you know certain little things that we'll get to, but like just the MacGuffin with uh, Pulp Fiction seems to be directly inspired. Oh by yeah, this. for
3: for for me, it's uh, the the big standouts are Repo Man. Mm. hugely takes from this um mm-hmm. uh and uh, for, uh also i think southland tales
0: oh yeah yes.
3: um, totally they're, which, wa- which are- they're,
2: they're watching this movie in a scene in southland tales. right oh yeah
3: yes. so true yeah like so like 100 so like th- these are the kinds of like weird sort of mix of like apocalyptic sci-fi but also sort of like you know uh you know winking genre play crime mm-hmm. film stuff kind of doing a little bit of um all of it. And, uh, yeah, there, there's so much incredible movies that don't exist without Kiss Me Deadly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was just seeing, seeing those references over and over again, scene after scene. I mean, I I had a couple more written down, but those were just a couple that, that stood out to me. It was, it was cool. I, I had no idea that this was just so influential. I heard about it for so many years, but this was the first time I finally got to see it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's unbelievable.
3: Oh, yeah, and we'll get to it with the finale, too, but like, there's mm-hmm. no one who's pulled more from the finale of this film than probably David Lynch, who, if anyone who's a fan of Twin Peaks, The Return loves the sort of like nuclear uh, Trinity uh, test uh, yeah. episode or and, all of the stuff to do with like the flashing um, gas station and all of that kind of stuff. That imagery is basically yeah.
0: directly lifted. <laughs> and uh, a surprising one for me was um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. In the finale, Uh, yes. So that was kind of cool too. So so fucking good, yeah.
3: No, there's there's so there's so much that obviously like this movie does really feel like it is going through the motions of a noir story to get to the insane finale. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and and I think for some the insane finale, like it really is only hinted at in kind of like the atmosphere of the movie. Like it really is just kind of like something feels off about every single aspect of him tugging his way through this, even though he doesn't act like it. He acts like he's behaving like this is just a very normal movie where the guys mm-hmm. like hey man, you know, how much money would it take to like crawl back into the gutter for you and he's just like well why don't you like make an exploratory offer, you know? Yeah. And then we we'll, you know, we'll, we'll 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 go from there. Um and he's like he's like Guy, you don't know what you're fucking into, man. And he, that's when he visits the opera singer as well, um who tells him that uh, one of the other murdered men in an accident was this very smart but sad scientist named uh, Nicholas Ra- uh, Ra- Raimondo who uh, had a, a little secret of big, perhaps atomic proportions, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, th- then obviously his his um, his buddy Nick, the guy who runs the garage, gets really violently killed even after, you know, he had him, uh, you know, take take the bombs out of the car. And he does, del- like, basically get him killed by asking him to find out who it was who planted the bomb. Yeah. Um, in, in yeah. the first place, and by him going around asking questions, he gets killed. And I really like the scene where as a result of all of this, all these corpses like piling up around him and all this violence he's doing out, he goes to Velda kind of, you know, maybe the most upset he maybe appears in the movie. Um and um, Velda goes, you know, I'm always glad when you're in trouble because, <laughs> you know, when you're in trouble, you come to me.
0: That's so um, sad.
3: <laughs> it's so sad. It's, it's really sad. Yeah. It's, it's like, a really sad it, like, feel, relationship they have.
0: Yeah. Because you just now she's desperate for anything to go wrong in general, just to have a little bit of love and attention. It's just like the all. Yeah. Any scene with Velda is kind of heartbreaking in a way. They play well, it and I, I find so her performance passive, in, in
3: that scene is one of the 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 best in the movie specifically mm. because, you know, she sees this as like this is the moment where the noir protagonist would have to soften up because he's got to get vulnerable because all of these horrible things are happening to people he's supposed to be friends with. Yeah. And this is the moment where she can seduce him and win in that capacity. And she still can't do it. Yeah. He's still, like. You know, he has no interest in her until she literally starts being like, what if I, you know, what if I gave you another thread to pull at? What if I heard about this, like, artist who's connected to a potential scientist? And what if I threw myself at them sexually so I could get more details for you? You know, would that, like, yeah. be of, of value to you? And um I think it's, a, I can't remember her exact line, but it has to do with like, you know, uh, is the great valuable, like, what's it, like, worth yeah, it I, for all? It. Yeah. Is, yeah. The great what's it. Like, is it, like, worth all of these, all of these lives? And is it, or are you just operating as, well, now you get to avenge your friend. So it's a really great excuse to do what you wanted to do anyway, which yeah. is, is satisfying. Yes. Yeah.
0: It's interesting. She, with she her basically characters. she
3: explicitly calls him out. She's like, you know, you literally want to satisfy your own curiosity and your own love for violent thrills, and mm-hmm. you have no interest in anyone else around you. So I don't even know why you're pretending to be like heroic or sweet in the you know and avenge yeah. your friend. It's not what you're doing. It's you never been what keep you're doing. Going.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And there's something interesting about her character too because I obviously have a lot of uh, sympathy for her character, but then as you get more into the relationship she has with with Mike, it, it, it starts to become a little bit more clear that she also doesn't care about a lot of these people either. And she's really after just what she thinks is this love and 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 you know good relationship, I suppose, with with Mike. And um, so there's a little bit of like she's she's also kind of rough around the edges, just given what her motivations are, what she's seen from from Hammer at this point. And she's still yeah. kind of pursuing it, interested. And again, she's very passive in these scenes when he's mentioning, like, who has died, what the consequences have been. She, she's kind of just like, okay, that's fine. But, like, what are we? Are we together? Are we happy? And um, yep. once again, there's a little, there's still sympathy for her character there. But there's also a lot of questionable motivation Um, And I like that. Well, she's almost like, what
3: more do I have to do? Like, I'm trying to be like you and I still and and, and, and you're still not like responding to it at all. And she literally does have to throw herself into this situation and disappear and get kidnapped before he actually pays any attention to it. In that great sequence where which is just someone taking uh,
0: away from him. And that's all he really cares about. I feel like it's another, you know, I I feel like his motivation would rather than like, I need to save my love, it's it's more like well, that's my love, so that's mine. I I, I <laughs> you know I I need her around me when I need her. Well, and he's not even that tormented about it when he right. gets the news in that
3: great right. scene at the jazz bar when he's just like drinking his pain away, and the remember me note kind of comes back in this almost sort of like dreamlike fashion, and he wakes up after passing out drunk at the bar, having Velda go and do his dirty work for him to the news of oh yeah, Velda's been taken. Mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. and, and that he's like he just like drunkenly he's like okay he just like drunkenly like stumbles out of the bar and into his car <laughs> he's yeah. like he's like i guess i'll you know look into this and i'll get some more details and uh, you know that's i think that's when charlie and suge come back and they corner him in his office and you know yeah. beat him and literally drag him to the la beach house where the
0: you know most of the finale will um will take like, place
2: I, I love the shot of them brawling in the sea in their seats yes
0: I was going to say it's so it's so chaotic and messy. It's like th- three guys that have barely know what the fuck they're doing. But they're just I also love that line for a couple
3: for a couple of cannons. You guys sure are polite. And the guys like, you know, we're on this earth for a brief span. Might as well be, man. Even if we're going to kill you beat the shit out of you, you know. Might as well be like, you know, don't trip over your shoes, dude, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Oh my god. I yeah, I really love uh, any honestly any moment that he interacts with the goons. It's only a few scenes, but they're really good very entertaining um very messy in a in a way that works it's it's awesome well this whole sequence is fucking crazy
3: when they tie him face down on the bed so that the doctor can come in and do his like evil monologue without showing his face and he's Mm -hmm. like you know you know he's like stop struggling like lie still why are you tormenting your yourself who would you even see you know someone you do not know like i'm a stranger and uh I I I like that you know he immediately kind of pushes his curiosity and he's like you know what do you think it is we're seeking You know, diamonds, rubies, gold, you know, maybe narcotics, you know, how civilized this earth earth used to be. But as the world becomes more primitive, its treasures become more fabulous. Perhaps (laughs) sentiment will succeed where greed failed. You will die, Mr. Hammer, but your friend, you can save her. Uh, The young lady you picked up on the highway, she wrote you a letter. In it were two words, remember me. And what is it that you must remember? You know, what did she mean as he's like injecting him with sodium pentothal? Yeah. uh, which is I think one of the last... Yeah, the, the last remnant of the more sort of, like, vicious, like, drug mob version of the script that I guess they let them keep mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, like, under its influence, he's like, you know, Hammer's going to fall asleep. And in his subconscious, he is going to tell them what he is meant to remember. And the, the hilarious irony of all of this is we know and he knows he doesn't know. He's <laughs> he haunted by this. He's, <laughs> like he, he, he might as well be asking them the same question. What did she mean by
0: that? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, before I go to sleep, what did she mean? Tell me. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh yeah it is it is honestly very funny because it really just sends is, home
3: like the pointlessness and the destructiveness of
0: all yeah, of this you know Yeah, and like barely like anyone no knows one knows what's going anything on. <laughs> even the people that you think at a certain point because they're these you know they're the uh the uh, the faceless just leg people um you'd think that they have the answers and they have you know something that he's looking for and then when they ask him that and they're kind of like why are you uh, going down this rabbit hole, it just it just feels like the only person that could possibly know are the the the, the truly faceless people that we're never going to meet in this film. Um, and yeah. that is kind of the answer by the end in, in a way. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a it's a great, great scene. And I also love that they threaten him. Um, they're like, you're going to die. But uh, but your your friend will survive, and at this point, I'm just kind of thinking like I don't know if that's going to be motivation for him. If I'm being honest <laughs> with you, <laughs> but continue. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. And uh the, the the rest of that scene is he like entering that like hysterical sort of like murmuring kind of like tortured perspective that that mm-hmm. he's kind of in although he 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 fakes a, it a little bit to an extent so that he can uh loosen one of his like bed tie straps and trick yeah. uh the the gangster to come back into the room and like lean into him to hear his confession and then he just beats him but I love that it it's this perspective where it takes on the quality of like, you know, at first it's like him going through the sort of procedural motions of a plan. But as soon as we actually access the point where he beats the gangster and you think the rest of the scene would be him, well, you know, untying himself, throwing the guy into the bed, like staging this sequence of events. It actually cuts to the perspective of the goons and turns right. it into more of like a horror sequence where you know yeah. they slowly kind the of, you know, they, 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 yeah, they hear the gangster be like, hey, Hammers talks like you can go in and fucking kill him. And so he goes in. And he, you know, the one the one goon takes his knife out and starts stabbing what he thinks is hammer on the bed. And we hear like the the sounds and the squirming and we get a look at it that Mike Hammer has replaced him with his boss. So he's just had this guy like deliberately or i sorry, I guess accidentally. um kill his own boss. And yeah. then we just hear Then we get the perspective of the other goon the as other he one, hears yeah. the other goon fucking screaming <laughs>
0: <Just> <laughs> and he comes and into the room out. and there's
3: just corpses all over the room. It's like, it's, it is, it's like
0: a little mini horror sequence in the middle of the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. I just love that he chose to direct it that way. Cause you easily could have done the more. And that what's, what's interesting is if you did do that, it would have at least given you, that um, that kind of thought that he has a little bit of sophistication and he, and he's thinking these things out and although it's all there like he had to have set that up and do those things not showing you that just and no, uh, he doesn't and give you the, the procedural satisfaction right, he exactly. just
3: gives you the horrible aftermath of, yeah. of it all so you're you just know?
0: you're just all you see again is the blunt force and it it's it's such a good choice and it's clearly deliberate and I and I loved it I, it does make him look like almost like a serial killer or a like a Michael Myers or something every once in a while. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, especially when he does that thing where he he deduces that uh, like what he's supposed to remember is the poem that the that uh, that oh, oh Christina my God. recites to him, and he goes into her corpse at the morgue where she oh, has oh, you yeah. know, supposedly <laughs> swallowed whatever she stole.
2: The funniest thing about that to me is that Mike cannot be even bothered to read the poetry book himself. He has <laughs> no. he has another woman that he meets just read it for him out loud,
0: and he's like, "Wait, what <laughs> was that line?"
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, the
3: the, the woman who we find out is involved in the conspiracy uh, but pretending to be the roommate whose body washed ashore days earlier which yes. he would know <laughs> if he was talking to his cop friend. <laughs> right. Oh, <laughs> which man. is like again he he like deliberately being selfish and not working with anyone is actually like you know meaning that he's like walking around with a ghost, which is another great obviously image but like it's just it's one of these things where he he keeps shooting himself in the foot. And putting himself into these situations. And when he gets to that morgue and that one doctor has the ball <laughs> to kind of be like, well, I have something clearly valuable here. You should pay me for it. Like, and he instead this guy, crushes man. his hands and <laughs> yeah. just like gleefully tortures him and smiles like through grit teeth, you know, and like it's, it's so it,
0: um, the way that he uh, directed this 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 actor to scream is like the most blood curdling painful scream you've ever heard like it's not just like oh my hands being crushed it feels like he really wanted to accent how much pain mike is putting him through it he is so screaming in this yeah, movie and, and he's shrieking <laughs> it's it's a it's 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 a great detail and i think it's very important
2: I, another yeah. really funny thing about the actor that plays the mortician is, uh, as Mike is trying to figure out what the clue about the body is, every time he says a piece of the like what it's ultimately going to be, like he's as he's solving it, the mortician just silently keeps like nodding and smiling, yes. like now yes. you're getting it, you're getting it. I was, yeah. I was <laughs> actually,
0: I put that in my notes when he was doing it because I I put it in my notes not knowing what the next scene was going, why is this guy not being helpful whatsoever? He just keeps nodding (laughs) and laughing at the guy. (laughs) And then we got the scene afterwards and it was very funny to me. But yeah, totally, totally. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, the key that he gets from the mortician leads
3: him to a uh, Sunset Boulevard athletic sort of like club storage locker that he has to Mm -hmm. slap a a fucking clerk around
0: (laughs) to get inside. The slapping Um, is so great. Just straight from like (laughs) the 40s and 50s 50s noirs I've seen where someone finally does get to that point of physicality. It's it's just grabbing the collar and smacking the shit out of them. It makes me laugh every time and in the best way possible.
2: Because like right away the old man that he slaps around is another one of those like stock characters that thinks yes. he's in a movie where characters talk more. <laughs> you know he's like he's like are you gonna make it worth my. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh totally that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> yeah and uh, he he
3: he gets to the locker he puts the key in it and inside there is this. Uh, This iron box covered in a sort of like leather carrier that when he opens it, it glows basically sort of like sunlight or atomic light. And it basically melts a portion of his of his skin off. It's it's burning hot, and he's mm. like, "Well, what the fuck is this? Is what everyone's after? Like, what the fuck is going on?" <laughs> and he's he's not getting any closer to anything. Like even like, because said too, one of my favorite things about this movie is that obviously so many noir characters are so driven by greed or you know driven by you know this sort of like valuable thing at the end of it. And it's so funny to get to the valuable thing, and it's just like this thing that hurts him. And he's like, yeah. "Ow, what the
0: fuck?" And he can't <laughs> do anything with it. He has. it's not like a pile of gold
3: it's not a pile of drugs he can sell it's like this thing that he doesn't understand the power of and it just doesn't he can't do anything with it it's like i don't understand
0: yeah um it's 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 great especially just given that you know like we've we've said it over and over again just how much power he has as a character instantly once he has this it's just like like what is this search been for at this point? Like now I just, I, I slapped, you know, half of LA to get here. And, and now this thing is completely All my friends are dead or disappearing. Yeah, it's and just, it's all
3: over this thing that I like, what, what I can, can, I sell this? Can I smoke
0: <laughs> this? I don't understand. Yeah, It's great <laughs> for his type of character to, to stumble on this. It's just awesome.
2: And it's like him experiencing an almost uh, animalistic fear for the first time. Like he he opens it for that split second and it makes that sound and it has that light and then he just shuts it and like – yeah, it's the first time you really see him afraid of anything in a way that he can't comprehend. Yeah. Like, it, this is this has unmoored his reality completely.
3: Well, it's the only thing more uh, more brutally powerful, you know? Yes, yeah. he's like, I, I, I can't slap it around. I can't... Uh- <laughs> I, can,
0: yeah. I can't even wield it. Like, he can't the, even use it as a weapon if he wanted to. It's so powerful. The, the only thing a weapon respects is a larger weapon.
3: That's <laughs> right. Yeah. That's right. And I love, too, it is is... You know, police officer buddy, who's like, you know, he's he's been slowly getting pissed off the entire movie that he's just been digging himself deeper and getting everyone killed and not actually helping them find anything out. And uh, his his line that he gets to, where he's like, you know, now listen, Mike, you know, I'm going to pronounce these words, very harmless words, but you know, their meaning is very important, and you know, try to understand what they mean. He's like Manhattan Project, Los Alamos, Trinity, <laughs> and, and you know, yeah, and you're like, oh fuck, this is fucking.
0: Huge. I love how even <laughs> Hammer, the character that we've been talking about, just just like powerhouse is like instantly. Oh, OK, here's the key. I'm, I'm fucking done. I'm good. Like that. what you just implied there is way over my head. Um,
3: yeah. And, and, and it's when he admits that, too. And, and he goes like, you know, I didn't know, you know, like I wouldn't have done this if I if I <laughs> had known. And I like that his buddy is like, would you? Yeah. Would you have done you any really? of this differently? Like, it sounded like you just wanted to slap some people around and you got your, you know, chance to do that here. And yeah, he's just totally like, like the movie itself throws his instinct back in his face because these are the instincts that a noir protagonist would usually trust. And right. they would actually end up solving the mystery, you know, getting some people arrested or killed, saving some people. These are all things that, you know, normally it's like, yeah, you. Being selfish or abusive or overly curious is, you know, something that, uh, you know, the marker of a good detective in these movies. And in this case, it's like, no, you've just helped. Unleash an entire wave of destruction, which is you know totally emphasized in the like really you know all timer finale of this film. Yeah, yeah. It it, it always
2: it always works out for a character like this in a Mickey Spillane novel. You just you're brutal, and then everything works out, and you're the good guy. Yep.
0: (laughs) Yep. Right. (laughs) And this is this is also um, what leads to him finding out that he's been deceived by the uh, the blonde girl who was p- portraying herself as, as Carver because the cop is like, no, we found Carver's body in a river like a week ago, so I don't know who you've yep. been talking to. So not only did he, you know, stall all of this, he he hasn't helped. That's in that's any such a creepy detail
3: is, too. I like that line. That's like a horror movie line. <laughs> oh yeah, hundred percent.
0: And he was, you know, he had moments of like kind of intimacy with her too, which is just even creepier once you have those scenes again um but but again he's just he's been he's been deceived not only has he not been helping the case but it's if he's probably made it worse because whoever this person is um is probably after what he's been looking for so he led her to it (laughs) right exactly exactly so yeah it's he's just fucked up so hard by this point
3: yeah. And, 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 even the mastermind criminals don't even like get anything out of this. Like everyone goes <laughs> down. Like that's yeah. what I love so much about this finale is that, totally. you know, like they, like it's, it's this, this doctor character. We finally get to see his face after only seeing his pants and his shoes throughout most of the movie. He's the one who's been interacting with this, um, woman who's pretending to be the roommate lily carver actual name in the film gabrielle um and they they get this box and she's curious she's just like you know i got this thing for you but like you know can i can i get a like a piece of that and i love all of these very ominous lies like <laughs> curiosity killed the cat you know pandora he, had a box who let all kinds of evil things out into the world you know like yeah. or what's the other one the head of medusa you know whoever looks at her
0: won't turn to stone but you'll be like lots wife yeah a the result I love all this motivation they have to, or I guess specifically in this case, the the um, blonde, what's, I'm sorry, what's her real name again? It's Gabrielle. Gabrielle. Yeah, Gabrielle. She actually has no clue what's in this thing whatsoever. There's, there's multiple times she asks the doctor like, what's in the box? What's in the box? Give me half. And, there's just something Unfortunately about- the
3: contents of this box can't be divided is one of my favorite yeah. lines too. She's yeah, like, I don't totally. understand what you want me to do. I can't like cut it in half for you if you want to open it. Yeah, it, <laughs> I just but love that so her
0: motivation is for something she completely has no idea about or understands. And obviously that leads to her demise, kind well, of. But yeah. And
2: and she's just like Mike Hammer in that way.
0: Oh, exactly. Totally. She totally.
3: has the exact same motive. Like that's just yeah. it. Her her totally. exact instincts are the exact same as my camera's. Which is like, yeah, the noir hero and and the villain think in are on the same wavelength of ooh shiny valuable thing. You know. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, exactly. and, and and you have to ask yourself too: Would Doctor Soberin have died if he himself was not compelled to be like telling answering an in intellectual riddles rather than just saying it's plutonium? <laughs>
1: you, know? Like, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs>
2: That's a but, great Yeah, point. but he would he wouldn't he
3: wouldn't be the doctor, you know, if he if he wasn't mo Eve doing his little, you know, he pr- he uh, did pretentious seem like monologues. When, he did
0: seem like when eventually she she shoots him that he has this space of like, oh shit, I probably should have shut the fuck up for a second there. <laughs>
2: but then <laughs> he even but keeps but, his
0: monologue going a little bit before he dies, which is very funny.
2: Yes, as he's died, <laughs> he has to drop his fourth mythology reference in five minutes. <laughs> Dude, like, like Cerberus bombs. at the gates I beseech you do not open this box <laughs> yeah
3: yep. I but Mike that. bursts in before she can the open performer. it too and at gunpoint too she gets that great lamp. she's like kiss me Mike you know the liar's kiss that that says I love you but means something else you're you're good at giving such kisses uh right before she <laughs> you know shoot shoots him um and uh, opens the box and just gets like as Jamie was mentioning like straight up Raiders of the Lost Ark like yeah. obliterated by the fucking box screaming burning yeah. alive igniting in these sort of like apocalyptic flashes just kind of like everywhere and yeah so I, Raiders this- very much but I again Lynch for the return for the nuclear mm-hmm. stuff and like it's just it's is a really really unbelievable imagery where it really just goes full apocalyptic horror like yeah. oh I, that's what happens if you open the box. It's just that's the value of this thing is that it just destroys everything.
0: Yeah. And just speaking on the, the filmmaking itself, like it, I at first it's like this this bright light and she's just screaming at the top of her lungs like you can, you know, she's feeling the, the heat and probably burning alive. And then they do this brief cut back to, to Hammer reacting. And then when they cut back to him leaving the room, you can see her just totally in flames standing there. And I just wasn't really expecting the full such a great um, shot, yeah, a yeah, full
3: just, body the dummy full shot of her actually <laughs> yeah. on fire, like literally
0: yeah. melting
3: on screen before our eyes. Her body, it's fucking crazy. Yeah, it's
0: crazy, and I, and this is 1955, right? So it, I was just, yep. I was very surprised by that. It's, a, I haven't seen things like that in this era uh, outside of like horror films. So to see it in a noir was was just very very cool. I really liked that. Well,
2: and and something I feel adds a lot uh, to this scene is not just the imagery, but the sound Mm -hmm. the bomb makes. It is this it's this hissing that sounds like human breathing, but like pitched in a weird way. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, it's and it's so breathy. And as
3: my exact note, it sounds like evil hissing and like scratching surrounding all the sort of like sort of like void. Like imagery of them going on to the you know nighttime beach and like the explosive light flickering and stuff like that.
2: And yep. it's almost it's only just occurred to me that the hissing sound that the bomb makes is almost a mirror of Chloris Leachman Leach uh gasping at the beginning of the movie. Very mm-hmm. mm-hmm. true, yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah, the soundscape and an of this
3: movie is breath. unbelievable,
0: yeah, yeah, it's very good. Um,
3: yeah. and and I, I do love that this movie, um, like and and this finale. Like this really does feel apocalyptic. And I I know that they were worried at one point that they thought it wouldn't feel apocalyptic enough because they did shoot some additional elements where it looked like, you know, that 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 Mike Hammer and um, uh, uh, Velda. Yeah, that it it was meant to look like they kind of escape and they get away. Um, And they actually went back later and shaved more of the runtime off and bumped the end up further because they did actually want people to get the feeling that they were going to get swallowed up by this explosion and that this explosion was maybe going to spread and it actually was going to be, you know, um, you know, uh, not a not a happy ending that everyone was that this was meant because I, I described in my review. But like the, the feeling I think that they were going for was like, this is the last day on planet noir you know we've yeah. done the noir genre this is the end of the world and the genre is over earth is over it's meant to feel just like huge and cosmic and, and kind we were of as nihilistic. honest as possible <laughs> yep we were exactly our truest most animal
0: selves for the last 24 hours <laughs> yeah and our yeah. And,
2: and and man's ape-like uh curiosity has led us to destroy ourselves
0: <laughs> yes yeah. And even the thing is too, like, even given the ending where they're just holding each other in the, in the ocean as the the light gets brighter and brighter, um, that still feels very just nihilistic and fatalistic because, you know, now they're aware of this, this, whatever powers it be, they are, they, they have this kind of a weapon. And, um, it, it feels like even if they've Maybe my camera's gonna chill out a little bit and and take Velda on a real <gasps> dinner date or something like that. But at the end of the day, they they have they have become well aware of what's going on in the world. Um, and it, it seems like you can't really escape that. So it's I think it still works either way. But both would be great.
2: Just just ending on them staring in horror in yeah. the sea, like with the. Because fl- it doesn't feel light.
0: loving. Still, it feels like, like yes, he saves her. They are holding each other, but they've. It, it feels like they're just looking at something that is so much bigger than them that they feel completely powerless and totally weak. And yeah, so it, 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 and kind of just hopeless, it feels like. Yeah.
3: Which was, which was a feeling that apparently, uh, the, uh, certain commissions in the United States felt was a menace to American youth.
0: That's right. (laughs)
3: Going to destroy the children. Yeah, they were like they were like this movie was accused of being a corrupting influence just for being <laughs> as cynical as it was, which to me is like a marker of like, you know, uh, I- incredible um, uh, skill and value <laughs> to the genre. <laughs> Definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> which is, you know, which is meant to be known for those kinds of qualities. And yeah, maybe if we are. um Pivoting towards the reductive rating round. Yeah. I mean, this one obviously has to get the five. This is this was uh, when I was deciding last year to do a top 10 of all time. This was uh, my choice for sort of representing the noir partially again, because it feels like it's taking so much of what of the best of what came before it. And looking ahead at, you know, sort of like the lack of future that that kind of character has, that that kind of mentality has, and, you know, people have described it. This is, this is like, really feels like a lot of noir came out in the post-war era and really reckons with the, you know, that kind of era. A lot of the noir detectives are veterans who killed people. Um, in this case though, this is a movie that feels like a sci-fi horror atomic age noir, like through and through. It's something surreal, it's something insane, um, something Something that very much kind of pointed forward to where the genre was going. And while also being just, in my opinion, one of the bluntest and nastiest pure genre exercises just of all time, Aldridge just taking and that that works in, I think, admittedly. In the way that, you know, you would want a Spillane novel to work in some ways where it is kind of lean, it's mean, it has like the pulp paperback sort of like detective fantasy character, in, you know, inquiring, but almost doing so in like the Tom Cruise eyes wide shut inquiry where it's <laughs> yeah. like, you're not going to really learn anything here. It's actually
0: really <laughs> fucking scary and, and everything horrible. that you're going to learn is just going to make you more confused and disoriented and alone. <laughs>
2: And it's going to make things worse for everyone. Yeah. 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 And and, and like that to me
3: is (laughs) it. That's such a crazy thing to come out in 1955. And to think that this is also like, you know, that they made the kind of like proto amoral sort of like dirty, hairy, fascist detective character. And they made an incredibly um, bleak and sort of unromantic depiction of this character as someone driven by. Impulse and their own sadism and their own brutality and uh, on on top of all of that So yeah for me, this is just like, you know, it I, I really really do take to the fact that they are Referencing so much of noir in a way that you feel like you're watching a noir you've probably seen before But there's so much visual and and sonic um, choices that are made to make Mm -hmm. you feel like this is an unstable world. This is a half remembered world and it is breaking down. It is dying. And the noir hero is kind of responsible for it. And his sick impulses are what drove us to um, all of this. And, you know, he's not only is he unheroic and unproductive by the end of the film, but in order to satisfy his own curiosity and animal urges, like he is completely he has led to the end of the world. Um, yeah. and it's just, it's such a fatalistic idea that's so inherent to the, you know, the primordial version of a character like this, that first you tug at the thread and then the string and then the rope and, uh, and then the rope hangs you, which is just sort of one of the best descriptions of the movie that the movie <laughs> totally. gives you itself. Uh, it's uh incredible five for me.
0: Yeah. Um, honestly, I think I'm going to five it too. I was going to give it the, oh, the, shit. the Jamie four, but I just like. Sometimes after we have these conversations and everything's fleshed out, it just it, it, it becomes clear to me that I have like no qualms with this movie whatsoever. And it has really become um, it, it, it's it's up there now. I think the other five I with Noirs, I think I've given a five to uh, Double Indemnity. There might also be Classic. a couple others, but another one I want to. Rewatch is uh in a lonely place because even though you know it's a, it's like we were saying at the beginning it's a little bit um more romantic there is still kind of that mysterious you know there, there, there's the is he a murderer is he not a murderer kind of aspect but so and and again i've said this a lot with noirs is i'm still i still feel like i really need to dive into a lot more of the genre but this is truly one of the most just nihilistic blunt noir as I've ever seen. And it does feel like uh, like when I was watching it, it had this feeling of I'm watching a, a classic noir, but just the, the deeper and deeper it got, the more violent and depraved it got. I was like, this, this, there, there's something more happening here. And then as soon as it becomes this larger than life kind of horror science fiction movie uh, for the last you know, 20, 25 minutes or so, it's it really just propels into something completely different. Uh, it's something I've really never seen before. Um, so I really like that it sets you up with a very classic noir character. But of course, we've talked about all of his, his, more, uh, his lack of sophistication and his kind of even lack of knowledge of how anything works. He's really just punching his way through everything um, until he gets to the end and realizes that he's fucked everything up. So there, yeah, there's something just incredibly intriguing about that. Very funny in an ironic way too, uh, yep. a very darkly ironic way. So I just I think this is great. And and it's interesting to think that Aldrich thinks that he's pulling back in this. I would have just loved for him to live through a time where he could have done with, literally whatever he wanted to. Because who Yeah, who knows if, what if, he I was, was gonna say if, any, if
3: anyone has the Criterion release, they actually did reprint his essay that he wrote defending the movie. So oh, in, the, awesome. in the little booklet there, if anyone has it, it's, it's, it's worth a, it's worth a read. Cause it is very funny that he is, he's totally right, but he is because he, he makes his case. He's basically like, look, you know, like in terms of what we showed on screen, like I, you know, we'd had conversations about it. We thought we were kind of being tasteful. I don't understand why everyone's like so <laughs> angry at us. And, yeah. and, but, but, but Casey's also right that in the some in, in a way, sometimes just ominous implication and yes. just not looking and like making your point. Um, just overall about the brutality and sort of misanthropic nature of a character like this and, you know, really leaning into his what, you know, his repelling qualities and being like, this is normally your hero. You yeah. bought millions and millions of copies of books about this character because in some way you probably relate to, yeah, I'd love a strong guy to go beat up a communist and save the world. And it's mm-hmm. like this movie totally, you know, it uh, goes, if that's what you're looking for, then uh, we're all dying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Exactly. And, and just even those subtle things through the implications too, like the torture scene kind of reminded me of the, um, the, the torture shot that they have in, uh, is it the black cat? The one where they, um, yeah, yeah, where it's just like a shadow on the wall, and that's kind of what you see with this. It's just the bare legs and the screaming. There's just yeah, where uh, so uh, Bella Lugosi
3: is uh, peeling Boris Karloff's like skin off or whatever <laughs> yeah. he's doing. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Great.
0: So um, great but Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is this is amazing. Um, looking forward to re- <laughs> rewatching it and uh, gonna give it the five. So yeah. Yeah, for you, Casey.
2: Uh, I'll keep my answer as lean and muscular as pulp Pros. Five
0: stars. <laughs> Hell yeah.
3: <laughs> Hell yeah, I love it. Hell yeah. Look at it. he's he's trying to get us out in under three hours. I see what you're doing. Um, <laughs> we appreciate it.
2: Also, yeah, just an but, unimpeachably great ending. What else can you say?
3: Yeah, it is. It is. I mean it's it's Alzheimer. it's been ingested into pop culture you know, uh, through whether you know it or not, you know whether it's through Repo Man or whether it's through Raiders or Lost Highway or Pulp Fiction or Southland Tales to pick your poison. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a reason it stood the test of time, and uh, that is going to wrap it up though. For Kiss Me Deadly, we are going to be right back, and we are going to be talking about a, a much more underseen movie, but you know, in in some ways, an even more Insane and at times inscrutable movie. <laughs> yes. We're going to be talking about the man who stole the sun, the
2: ground. <laughs>
3: All right, we are back and we are talking The Man Who Stole the Sun, the 1979 Japanese science fiction action comedy crime thriller.
0: Absolutely, it is.
3: And directed uh, by uh, uh, Hasagasa Kazuhiko. You might be able to help me here, Casey. Yep,
2: Uh, Kazuhiko Hasegawa. Kazuhiko.
3: Hasagawa gotcha all right uh and this is our first time obviously talking about Hasagawa um this uh this film uh, also uh co-written by uh legend of the show Paul Schrader's brother uh yeah. Leonard uh Schrader who we previously mm-hmm. talked about before um who because him and Paul one of the first scripts they ever sold was the yakuza from 1974. A very, uh, very good movie we've covered on the show. We've done another episode on, so you can go and, uh, go and check that out.
0: Yeah. But,
3: uh, uh, Casey, we might, uh, need some help from you on the, uh, story of, uh, Hasegawa here. Yeah, um, so because I, it, he, he only directed by the looks of it that I can see two, like feature studio Japanese films, but he had a previous career by the looks of it at Nikatsu, who we previously mentioned before for being the home of Seijun Suzuki, um, uh, mostly uh, firing Seijun Suzuki (laughs) (laughs) when he went a little too hard with his uh, inky kinky uh, Hitman movie branded to kill, um, <laughs> but I, but I guess he was like a a, a Roman porno sex exploitation
2: filmmaker. From what I could tell, uh, he he worked on those films as uh, he he wrote a lot of scripts for Roman porno projects. Um, gotcha. He was also he also trained under uh, Shohei Imamura, so that was right. kind of his early experiences in film. It's true. The man who stole the the soul of the sun is his second and last film as a director. Yeah, God damn. Um, Crazy. He does however go on to uh, be one of the founders of uh, a 1980s uh, independent Japanese film group called The Director's Company, which uh, produced a lot of movies that I think will go on to be future sleazoids canon when uh, okay. awesome. if and when they get picked. He kind of gave a lot of opportunities to young directors, um, including okay. uh, including uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who, is an ass- who uh, helped as an assistant on this film.
3: That I did read, which is funny. Apparently, specifically, Kiyoshi Kurosawa was the guy who throws money off the building when we see the the, oh, that's the, awesome. uh, the money flying in the one shot, which apparently they did not get permits for. And Kiyoshi Kurosawa got in a lot of trouble for doing <laughs> uh, there.
2: There are a lot of scenes in this movie that they film in public without permits. That's what it felt Uh, like.
0: Larry Cohen style, baby. Yeah, I was wondering (laughs) specifically in the in the beginning um, where it's just showing his like commute to work and things like that, where he's just on the subway and he's even traveling with a a ton of people surrounding him upstairs. It's a really well composed shot, but I was curious if they they got the permits for it or or whatever was going on.
2: No, uh, Hasegal was pretty willing to admit that he really didn't bother with that as much as he could avoid it. Hell yeah. Um, So so a little bit about the genesis of this project and how it came to be, because yes, it is co-written by Leonard Schrader. Uh, So Schrader and Hasegawa had met in uh, the late 70s uh, while Hasegawa was on a writing assignment for the uh, Japanese edition of Rolling Stone. And all he knew about Schrader at the time was that he was Paul Schrader's younger brother. Um, But they... (laughs) But uh, at that point, Schrader had moved to Japan, um, had married a Japanese woman, had you know, written Yakuza, so they got to talking, and something that came up in their conversation was that Hasegawa was born in Hiroshima a few months after the bomb had dropped um yes so, i did
3: I, I i did read that yeah so and and his mother had like lived there obviously
2: yes and he, and it it was something that stuck with Hasegawa his whole life that he had been indirectly exposed to radiation in the womb like that is an that is an image yeah. in his mind that he cannot let go of um so months later uh schrader reaches out to him and goes hey i have this idea about a guy who builds an atomic bomb and blackmails the government to air, to keep airing nightly baseball games on. Leonard Schrader was like, Hey,
3: you know, my brother made a really famous movie a few years ago called taxi driver. And it was about a homegrown terrorist who just like went fucking crazy sicko mode on everyone. (laughs) He was like, what if we had like a Japanese guy do that with an atomic bomb? And you know, do you think that that would make a cool idea for a movie? Uh, while Leonard Schrader, as we've mentioned previously on the show was in Japan, just dodging the Vietnam draft. Like that was why he was in Japan and why so many <laughs> of the Schrader brothers projects came to be. He was just hanging out in Yakuza bars. He was watching, you know, sort of like sixties, um, you know, sort of like Japanese, uh, studio films. He was watching stuff like, uh, Sunny Chiba movies and, you know, and, um, Dude, the Schraders he, uh, are so
0: fucking cool. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Well and so supposedly Leonard Trader, I I believe was in the in the late sixties met Yukio Mishima as well, which is part of what got that whole uh, project yeah. underway for, for Paul. Uh, which
0: So uh Sawada uh is in Mishima, I believe. And Hiroko the Goblin, yes. which I found yes. interesting. Because we recently covered that. Yes.
2: Oh, there's there's a lot to say about Sawada. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> but
0: he's but, so crazy.
2: <laughs> but one of Great the really performer. funny things about this is that the the idea that Schrader had kind of ended at the he holds them all for ransom at a baseball game just because Leonard Schrader thought it was really funny that Japanese uh, TV had a hard out for baseball games or like <laughs> they had to be over in time for the evening news. So no matter what inning they were in, it would just end. Yeah like that, that was yeah. the that was the thing back in the 70s. Actually, yeah I, yeah apparently
3: what, that actually pissed Schrader off so much that that was that was literally why that that aspect that's like the, the motivation he, that, for the, the, the screenplay. Yeah the, the character being annoyed at that is Schrader also being annoyed at that. And <laughs> he
0: was like coming up with the ideas like well how would I get to watch the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning of the game. I know. It was like what if, what if <laughs> I threatened to
3: bomb Japan until they brought extra innings? <laughs> <to> the-
2: <laughs> oh my god. I, and that was as far as the idea went when Trader brought it to Hasegawa, and Hasegawa's answer to him was he asked him what he thought. He said, My answer is so stupid, so good. And that's how we started working together. Um agreed. But- <laughs> <laughs> but he had also, but he had also heard that the original person that uh, Schrader had pitched the idea to was Dustin Hoffman, who imagined himself in the lead role. Oh my,
0: oh my god! Um, would he still have been dude like, like Straight in Time Japan? era Dustin Hoffman too? Wow, I'm trying to imagine. <laughs> would that. it have been Dustin oh, Hoffman right. in Japan, or would they just move it I, to America?
2: Hasegawa didn't specify
0: on that okay. one, but he, but he <laughs> said curious. like he said. I, I was going to. This
3: takes on a very different <laughs> socio-political context if it's an American threatening to atomic bomb Japan.
2: Correct. <laughs> oh, <there we laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but you know, thank thankfully, uh, Schrader had remembered uh, Hasegawa's story about being from Hiroshima. You know, and months after the bomb, so he brought it to him, and they they ended up collaborating and co-writing it into something much greater, and uh, and that's how you know. One of the other funny things about this, too, is that um, Hasegawa had said that like he, he Hasegawa was the one who pitched the idea that the main character should also be exposed to deadly amounts of radiation. Because he's like mm. Schrader's idea was kind of a lighter comedy film. And I told him <laughs> we need to make this a comedy, but really messed up. And he said that I kind of had to remind him, like, you're one of the Schrader brothers. You have to. Yeah. Make this. <laughs> he said, he said, like, once I pitched it to him that way, like, he got really into it. So oh my God. They, oh, res- awesome. they reshaped it into what it is now.
3: What a cool little collaboration that like exists and, and yeah. such a weird existence because like just ha- a Schrader brother
0: happened to just be living in Japan for like a decade. <laughs> yep. And just was mad that he couldn't watch all of baseball. I love it. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Be- yeah. So I, I think this is also
2: a good point to bring in the uh, the lead actor who you mentioned was Kenji Sawada. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kenji Kenji Sawada was he had started out as a huge pop star in the late sixties. Uh, he was part yes. of a movement called Group Sound, which was kind of followed the Beatles wave. So it was Japanese acts trying. Yeah, apparently to be the they Beatles. also
3: did like movies too, like the Beatles movies and stuff. Like I like we didn't mm-hmm. we didn't look into this when we did the Shinya Tsukamoto film Haruko mm-hmm. the Goblin, where he was playing the goofy archaeologist who stumbles upon like a cursed school filled with like demonic spider heads and decapitated children. It was a whole thing. Go back and listen to that episode. Um, But I, we, we didn't actually look into his biography and that he, and, and it, it made me look into it in this one because you could tell that he was deliberately being used as like a symbol of like, a kind of aimless sort of like counter-cultural kind of Japanese youth. They give him the long hair. They give him this like, you know, they, 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 they clear. And then, so when I found out that he was essentially in like a, he was, he had like a Beatles style fame in Japan. I was like, this makes so much, this casting makes
0: so much sense. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's. Go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna I think it's really interesting to have like a really idolized pop star take on that role like you said he's got the long hair he kind of does even though he's a science teacher in the in this movie he does have he's this kinda kind got of got that
3: boyishness too you know yeah, even yeah. though he's like mid 30s or late 30s or whatever
0: and he has that <laughs> counterculture kind of um just just attitude about him or and and especially aesthetic about him and then you have him do things like teach the kids how to make atomic bombs and all of that it's just it's really <laughs> awesome to actually have his his uh his history as an actor in there too, just to give more context. It's very funny that way. Well, and and this, this movie comes out during his
2: like great period of career, reinvention in the seventies where he breaks away from his band, the tigers. Mm. He goes solo and he, he sort of, he becomes a more flamboyant figure. He starts wearing makeup. He starts dressing really eccentrically and that brings him a complete, I heard he had crazy stage
3: routines. Yes. Oh yeah. Any examples? Bizarre stuff. Whoa, whoa. Uh,
2: one one of the ones I've always heard about was that he used to like dance with like a parachute that he would open on stage. Like, okay, <laughs> stuff like that. It's just uh, or or That's he would funny. like he he would take like big swigs of like alcohol and then just like mist them onto the crowd. <laughs> um, so stuff like Stone that. that that Steve really Austin. that really oh, well. brought him a lot of tape. He was also briefly married to one of the Mothra twins, uh, one of the members of the Peanuts. around this period Uh, so you know he's he's got his bona fides but uh, (laughs) but yeah uh, and also in the early 80s like he he kind of dabbles with uh, like sexuality in really taboo ways like he kisses another famous male pop star as like a promotional thing and like it's it's so they they play in a little bit to that flamboyance he becomes more of a japanese david bowie figure in the late 70s Mm. Uh, so Mm. and that's and that's really where we find him uh, at this period in his career
0: Okay. Uh, Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, I mean, credit, credit to them. Like one of the things that it didn't make me think of tonally, but, uh, (laughs) it, it it has like a very almost like sort of like post new wave kind of style. And if we're talking about David Bowie, like the man who fell to earth was something that I was thinking about in terms of just like trying to be like radically genre bending and showing you things you've maybe seen before in a way where it is like, you know, like you've seen a great seventies style, like hard boiled cop movie. You've seen a cat and mouse procedural. You've seen a weirdo criminal match mastermind kind of elements of all this and this has if you're looking for that it's got the zooms it's got the suits yeah. it's got the romantic longing to it it's got the high octane action movie fucking chases
0: and explosions and straight but up just silly tying physical all of, gags that are like out of yeah. a cartoon kind of esque movie <laughs> like it's, it's yeah it b- gets strange and, in a good and also way. Y-
2: you have scenes of uh you, you have scenes of um sawada like dressing as a woman to disguise himself and yeah he's direct and disguises. master of disguise
3: mode yeah. <laughs> he's the, yeah
2: <laughs> and, and and like and flirting with the Buntasugawara police officer you right. know like yep. he's and these are like there's a flamboyance to the character that would not work without Sawada and in fact this movie would not have been made were it not for Sawada because uh once Hasegawa had pitched the idea of like okay it's about a Japanese man that makes an A bomb and holds the country to ransom the studio was like i don't know about this <laughs> like yeah. and then as soon, as soon as they realized that Sawada had signed on for it, it's like okay this is a guy who sells million you know millions of records all the time so yeah let's go ahead and make this thing
0: yeah and even it's, his 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 character that, like has a performative aspect to him where once he starts talking to the the cops on the phone about all his threats to the uh, about the the bomb and, and baseball and whatever else it leads to he's changing his voice a lot of the time he's almost putting on characters characters as he talks to them and then resorts back reverts back to like his, his normal voice um, it, it kind of all depends on what he's trying to get out of them whether he's trying to come off as threatening or mysterious or sometimes it even seems like he's trying to amuse himself but he he has a lot of different like dynamics to his performance within the character itself like it it, it feels like his character understands acting in a way which is kind of strange But
3: yeah, even though he is functionally just meant to be like this, like dorky, mm -hmm. like lonely science teacher. Yeah. Like all like, 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 like ultimately, even though he thinks of himself as like incredibly cool, like that movie little (laughs) opening, which has like that, like, you know, has like this like 70s, like kind of like jazzy rock uh, soundtrack, almost out of like a buddy cop movie or something. And it's over images of a nuclear blast. And then. Our main character here, Kenji Sawada, playing a man named Makoto, um, and he's like chewing bubble gum, and he's <laughs> like coolly staring through his binoculars at the uh, Tokai nuclear reactor that he's scoping out, as if he's gonna like it's like a bank heist or something. Yeah, and it's setting up this insane tonal premise for this movie which is that makoto is this eccentric like long-haired again bubblegum chewing consistently uh you know outcast high school science teacher who is obsessed in the same way that clearly hasagawa was with the idea of you know sort of like the atomic bomb or atomic energy the atomic world it's this you know it's awesome power and consuming power to destroy to incinerate i think he describes it as like having a sun in your hand but it is but the thing he's particularly impressed with it by is that it is a man-made achievement um, that it it was something that someone chose to do, which I mean, if Mm -hmm. you, you know, again, it's very funny coming out and we just talked about Oppenheimer not that long ago. And it's like, well, this guy's a lot more proud that it's a man-made achievement. um, And he (laughs) decides that he's going to harness that power um, by building. And this is like, it's genuinely one of the most insane premises I've ever had. Like (laughs) log line wise, if you have to describe this to someone, you're like, he builds an atomic bomb in his apartment, Oh yeah um you see which every he does detail. by stealing plutonium isotopes from a nuclear reactor which which we'll get into and we mm. see him like plotting this all out and testing how to like suffocate a reactor guard by like first spraying his cat um also I forgot to mention a great movie cat in the last one as well so two uh, we got some cat
0: uh, yeah. connections here unfortunately um, this cat gets treated pretty tragically but yeah I horribly, yes. <laughs>
2: Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get into the tragic fate of the cat, but I, I do want to bring up real quick while I'm thinking about it. Like I, there is no way this cat is acting. So like they must have drugged this cat repeatedly. on oh, film. yeah,
0: or it's Academy Award winning for an animal because it's <laughs> yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, no, no, no one call PETA for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It's there's a lot of uh, fainting cats in this, and it it honestly looks like it was one of them, but. Yeah. It is what it, I, I will um, say it's like it's it's weird when you watch some of these older films with that kind of stuff in it there is like a like obviously an authenticity because they're authentically drugging a cat so there there's something that like puts you into the filmmaking a little more, but there's always that, you know, it's, obviously we shouldn't be doing it, um, but it's so interesting to watch that kind of stuff. It, it, usually it's in the, I find, the 70s Oh, it's, it, it definitely,
3: it, it feels more shocking for yeah. sure. that You're just like, oh, Jesus. Yeah, like, yeah. That fucking cat a lot. Even though it's meant to be kind of like a character quirk that he has, that he has a cat and he's willing yeah. to like kind of use the cat to achieve cat, his
2: experimentation. He tests his and knockout gas on it or, yeah. Yeah, that yeah.
0: Other. He's definitely, what's interesting is that given the tone, it is kind of silly and he has, you know, kind of like lovable qualities to watch as a character. A lot of what he's doing is still obviously, you know, borderline evil. So it's uh, just given the risk that is being involved in kind of his selfishness and getting what he wants and realizing the power he holds once he has the bomb and all of that. Um, It's it's just interesting to balance the thing because he's still a character that you kind of want to like as you're watching him but... Really well, and these... he's playing by an incredibly
3: charismatic yes. and sort of like likable actor, right? But but I <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the 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 point of this is obviously that he's very attracted to this corruptible thing, and it yeah. literally poisons his mind and his body <laughs> in order to and, and and he becomes more extreme and kind of more violent as it goes on, and it does feel mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know in Schrader style, it feels like you know it's a you know satirically looking at this idea of you know characters in intense isolation and sort of like violent feelings the way that they think about authority, the way that, you know, how hysterical this character gets. But obviously it's incorporating, you know, some pretty unique and violent kind of Japanese history into that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, but ultimately this is a movie about a character who, you know, as Hasegawa, you know, said that he kind of felt himself like a character who feels like they were already radiation poisoned and now, you know, the world is kind of, catch. he's helping the world kind of catch up to them um, a, a little bit. So mm-hmm. you're definitely meant to watch this as... Uh, it has a descent like quality. Like definitely this is very similar to a Travis Bickle esque. Like, you know, guy has sort of some sympathetic qualities and then it's like, as it goes on, you're like, Oh, Mm Oh, Uh, you know, the obsessiveness, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the darkness kind of really comes in just instead of, you know, Travis Bickle being obsessed about saving Jodie Foster. He's just, you know, imagine he's obsessed with the power of, atomic annihilation <laughs>
2: well, so a reason i another reason i think this pairs very well with kiss me deadly is that it just like mike hammer like there is a drive to accomplish something without knowing what the goal is actually supposed to be like
3: yeah this one is a lot more humorous about that aspect though i find which is funny yes. which i which i which i think is like is 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 great because like we'll get into it but like by the time when he eventually makes the thing his first thought is like oh shit i made the thing yeah. <laughs> yeah, i didn't i didn't actually I did get it. further than this i did i didn't actually think about like what does one do with the thing <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah yeah what do you do and, when and you have this much power
2: and just like mike hammer people keep asking why did you do this why are you this he doesn't he, <laughs> he like, does not know. have an answer <laughs> it, and it and his answer doesn't matter
0: and that's what's funny yeah. because the the answers in a in a technically, are like two things, which is basically the baseball thing that we've already discussed, which is just so funny that it's like you get this... All powerful. Even though it feels more
3: like happenstance, right? Like it felt like more like he's like, Well, I that's something that annoys me. Maybe I could like force them to stop doing something that annoys me. But it does feel like it just kind of, you know, it it was an impulsive decision on I guess I could make them do something. Right. It just it just (laughs) feels like such an
0: everyday man's motivation to use that kind of power and be like, this is what I'm gonna get out of it. And then I like later another example is he wants to get the Rolling Stones back in Japan because Keith Richards was because of drug possession, he's not allowed there. And they're like, no let him in so we can watch the Rolling Stones. <laughs> it's, it's very funny. Incredible. Well, uh,
2: uh, well, and, and the, in the baseball case too, it's very clear that like once he gets it, like he's almost immediately not interested in the game anymore. He doesn't even, like, <laughs> yeah. he, he turns his back to the TV and just feels good about having made just accomplishing it.
0: Yeah. totally. Um,
2: and, and just to bring up real quick, the, the Rolling Stones issue, this, uh, this is twofold. Um, one is that, and this is true to this day, uh, entertainers in japan who are caught with any kind of drugs including marijuana are considered persona non grata and blacklisted from the industry um (laughs) so if you are a foreigner you you are not allowed to come back into japan for any reason it does not matter how rich or famous you are and if you are uh from japan uh you like your items are your you know your music is removed from stores you're you're done and you're done in the business like it's just that's wild so uh, that is that not rock
3: and roll. So you so so what 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 Japan needs is a dangerous gun-wielding hijacker to come in and say, "Let the rock stars do yeah. drugs." He is a well, hero. And, and it's it is,
2: <laughs> yeah. it is it is it is funny by the way cuz Hasegawa mentions that one of the reasons he tried to do this was because he actually wanted to see if making a movie would make, make Japan let him let the Rolling Stones into <laughs> Japan again. <laughs>
1: that's
0: awesome. um, oh so it was Oh my god, that's awesome
2: it was partially selfishly motivated and he had even considered like filming a scene out in hawaii if he had to to get the <laughs> rolling stones into this movie but it just did not work out in any way
0: god oh, damn that's yeah. that's hilarious
3: we were we we were so close we were so close but but
2: but that's just what
3: i i think is so great is that you can tell how Similarly, I guess, to Kiss Me Deadly, that there, there it is so selfishly We're we're so dropped in the perspective of something so selfishly motivated um, mm-hmm. and and to someone who's reacting to things that are like, you know, and like how uh, they were saying that they pulled things that were happening into the world and kind of just like threw it in. And here he's reacting to actual sort of like political realities, actual sort of cultural wars. We'll get into it generational uh, wars when we get into the very tough and stoic uh, cop character played by Bunta. Um, Bunta Sugawara, yep, yeah, from uh, Kinji Fukusaka's Battles Without uh, Honor and Humanity um, series, who is meant to sort of symbolize the more sort of old school, old guard um, of of Japan in comparison to the rebellious um, youth in this case. Mm-hmm. But I but I like that so much of this is he takes these things in around him and kind of absorbs them and then kind of refracts them back out or kind of transforms by them. Because his actual motivation to even become a terrorist or to use any sort of like, you know, violent extortion comes from the fact that he is in one of those scenarios himself. That mm-hmm. like, the, like the the premise of that he's already building an atomic bomb, but before he's even gotten even close to it, there's this like crazy hostage situation where a gun-wielding hijacker, an apparent, uh, I can't remember if they said it was a World War II veteran or maybe he was like related to one. But regardless, due to the outcome of the war, he wants to speak to the emperor. Yeah. His, and son died is, in,
2: his son died in World his War II and died. he couldn't live with it.
3: That's right. Um, and so that's when we're introduced to this uh, Inspector Yamashita, um, who uh, you could tell immediately is going to be diametrically opposed to our protagonist because he's got a crew cut. So I was yep, like, yep, exactly. 100%. These, these two guys are, you know, they might be getting along in this scene, but they will not be getting along by the <laughs> end of the movie. Um, Those two haircuts don't hang out. Nope, nope. <laughs> and so he he's the responding officer to this scene, and it is... Um, you know it is uh, Makoto's uh, school bus and his uh, you know his students who have been sort of like hijacked here and together they work together to kind of diffuse the situation before getting into uh, the violent sort of altercation resulting in the inspector taking some like really nasty shots to the body great squib work in this movie overall we'll talk about some of it but you get a brief glimpse of it here Uh, and you also get the culprit like trying to like pull a grenade on the kids and like a sniper trying to take him down it's a scene like straight out of like a super violent hard-boiled like 70s cop movie yeah
0: yeah and it it, and uh, like with anything in this movie um and i and i do mean this as a compliment things are very stretched out like this is a pretty long scene just to establish uh you know kind of his 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 motivation and seeing this uh excuse me and seeing this man kind of you know fight back due to the stress of losing his son and and feeling like the uh the the you know the government isn't really giving him anything to reconcile that or anything like that. Um, Like it it is, it is very drawn out and there's even, I love too, like the shot of him slowly getting out of the, uh, of the bus and then being surrounded by some of the students and including that's great. That's a
3: surreal visual gesture, like almost out of a Suzuki film or something. The overhead shot of the circular formation as he's using kids as human
0: shields. Yep. Yep. Because they already have the snipers shoot ready to go and everything like that. Like it's, it's it's really just it's great. I'm and it's an, another example of just how this movie goes from kind of like genre to genre. This is very thriller action, and then we'll have an entire procedural element after this where he's making the bomb, and they show you every single fucking detail of that, uh, every single. Oh script, well, I was gonna say, diagrams. and not only that, a full a full Mission Impossible style heist sequence, yes, like
3: yes, at yes. the yes. reactor with him in like scuba robber gear. It's, it's th- very
2: on the Third that scene it's fucking
3: crazy it has like a sick like energetic score to it for like an exploitation action movie it and has a still escaping, frame
0: thing that it's doing a little bit yes. too which is very cool yep. the
3: editing pattern as he's like shooting his way out and like repelling down he whips out a flamethrower and starts like blowing it up and there's a like, crazy
0: <laughs> freeze frame edits this <laughs> like, what's wild too is because of the kind of strange way it's edited and it's, it's in these freeze frames it, it, it really does appear like he just busts out a flamethrower out of fucking nowhere <laughs> and and again it kind of just adds to this this chaotic nature of the film that and, and, I and feel this like, is just interspersed within scenes of like his daily life yes, of like you know right.
3: teaching about the atomic power to kids and yeah, the like next going scene for is nightly him jogs walking. and hanging out
0: with his cats right the next scene is him just like on the bus going to school <laughs> yeah it's, so, <laughs> it's 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 unbelievably it, it feels like there'd be more whiplash but I think there's something to be said about, one, like it, it's really everything put together, the performances, the, the writing of it, the, the direction does have a lot of control. I, I feel like the way we're explaining it in any other film, I would feel more disoriented uh, in the ways that it goes. No, through all these anyone genres, who's listening but... to
3: this and hasn't seen the movie will be like, there's no way those two scenes play back to back and that makes any <laughs> right. sense. And then you watch the movie and you're like, they kind of do. Yeah. They, you know, <laughs> you kind of get like, like they, they are. And that's not to say that it doesn't have crazy tonal shifts. It does. totally, totally. But it's just there. Th- there's a there's an interesting sense to this. And I will say, too, it's also 2.5 hours long. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are moments in this where it's so Crazy that it it get it got a little exhausting for you. A little and, sure. and there was times where it threatened to be a little like meandering, but mm-hmm. because of the mm-hmm. length, it really did feel like he was like, I, I'm gonna spend time on every little aspect, every little sort of like, you know, sort of like side world character. I'm gonna hang out for a yeah. little bit. But but it but it is the, the direction that it's so ambitious and so unpredictable in terms of which (laughs) exaggerated genre style he's going to use. And on a scene by scene basis, the movie just completely changes and it's pretty engaging. Like it's not, it it doesn't feel like it's losing you. It feels like it's just constantly escalating and constantly building
2: and, you Mm -hmm. know, and
3: that's a, that's a quality that, you know, you, you have to admire in it, I think.
2: I think the se- I think that those tonal shifts fit how exhausting it must be to be this main character like yeah, to be yeah. this guy like he cuz he keeps fluctuating between like thrill seeking and <laughs> like relentless boredom
3: yeah. yeah, falling asleep in in class because he st- spent the whole night awake making his bomb.
2: <laughs> yeah, one of the one of the funniest scenes in this movie for me is when he's when you see him writing out like the the atom bomb formula on a chalkboard, and then you realize he's doing it in front of his class, and the kids are like our class is the only one that learns this weird crap. We can't even <laughs> study for this on an entrance exam. And he's like, that's the easy <laughs> stuff. Study that at home. And another kid just goes, hey, don't interrupt sensei. Let him do his thing. And they just all go back to having their side conversations while he does that, not caring about them at all.
0: Yeah, one of my yeah. favorite questions is when he has the how to how to make an atomic bomb and before they get into the talk of like no other kids are learning this, the one student's just like, is this going to be on the final <laughs> exam? And I just, <laughs> the thought of how to make an atomic bomb bomb on on the exam is just really humorous to me so i, I, I really love, love all
3: that. the shots uh of him snuggling his bombs oh, in bed and oh. hanging out with the plutonium and because he yeah, the way he treats it it's the same way travis bickle pointing the gun at the mirror at himself which he actually also does in this film right. but that that's how he treats his like homemade warheads which he makes in these series of incredible like wordless sweaty Intense and at the time, from what I understand, pretty controversially detailed sequences of him building these bombs in a spacesuit in like this it like does pink feel... and purple blue lab in his apartment. Yeah, I mean, they felt at the time the Japanese censors, I think, felt that it was it was borderline instructional in yeah. terms of like maybe not building a literal atomic bomb, but building a functional bomb. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, like you definitely need to know a little bit of the knowledge in between each step that it takes. I would imagine, and maybe like what materials, but. I, th- I feel like if you had a just mediocre knowledge on how to do it, and then watch these scenes, you'd have a pretty good idea on how to make one. It's, it's, yeah, and it's and, and, and they're, wild. they're treated like the bomb
3: diffusing sequences in like the Hurt Locker or something. Like it's like yes. heavy breathing, it's so like twitchy slow. hands, you know, that could explode at any second. But with yeah. but with like the absurdity of the situation still kept in mind throughout, I literally I was like I was watching this by myself, and I was dying laughing at the shot of him putting the materials into just his like home of Oven, oh, and yes. like cooking it, like like a like like a like a roast, while he like watches baseball and drinks beer, and he's like not even paying attention to it cooking in the background,
2: <laughs> and the oven just instantly explodes. <laughs>
3: Yeah. So then he asks, he's like, "Maybe I need to get like a specific oven for this." (laughs) (laughs) And
2: and it's it's so interesting too, because like they they cut they show him being so meticulous. The movie's still like, yeah, no, he's still radiation poisoning himself. No matter how he
0: tries, this is an amateurish production. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing too. Well, he's a
2: scientist
3: ignoring all of the science, which is set up in that line when he first meets the cop too, where he's like, "You're a teacher." He's like, "What do you teach?" Science. He's like, "Hmm." I don't think science is going to help us right now <laughs>
1: Yeah,
0: that is, that is <laughs> in the of, hostage situation. That is kind of peculiar that like his determination to build the bomb seems more important than anything like any knowledge surrounding it. Like he would have to know that, you know, the radiation is going to start t- destroying his body. That just seems like if you know how to make the bomb, you would know that. But he just doesn't seem to really care, and at first he seems shocked when he starts to like lose his hair. There's a couple scenes where he looks at his gums that are like bleeding and kind of deteriorating, Um, and. And eventually it just uh, it, it gets to a point where he seems like he's getting used to it and almost embracing it a little bit like he's he, he likes yeah, part, part of that
3: was, in my opinion, just like as much as his body is degrading, it is meant to be, I think, a depiction of a psychological degradation as totally. well, that it is just totally. like he's he's slowly going insane with <laughs> the, you know, with the obsessive. Mission, And it is causing him to ignore like basic things you think that he would understand, which is like, yeah, the science of what hanging out next to an atomic, what snuggling an atomic bomb <laughs> in
0: your bed would do to your body. Yeah, exactly. Just like logistically, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, also speaking on kind of the, uh, the the genre bending that it does, I really do like when things start to fuse together. Like anytime they present the cops, uh, like sp- obviously uh, uh, Yamashita, he it's very, you know, kind of a still camera. It's just guys in suits talking in these really rich looking offices and things like that. And then the yeah, moment all his he scenes calls with them, his cop
3: buddies almost look like out of like the hostage situation and like high and low or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then as soon as he calls them, it's, it's kind of a mix where it goes back and forth between him and his apartment kind of being almost a kind of putting on a character just for the cops. Like I said, he's using voices back and forth and things like that. But then there's the very stoic cop scene and and you just have more of a kind of a stationary look at them and, and they're very, you know, just kind of boring men and all of that. Yeah. So. Well I
3: mean it's worth noting Bunta Sugawara, like an all timer screen presence for mm-hmm. just like, oh, you know, powers, very, yeah. very tough and yeah, very, very strong. Very, you know very serious and 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 there is something to be said about having such a serious character have to interact with such a ridiculous character <laughs> yes. in concept like exactly. it's, it's it is actually like Bunta ends up being actually incredibly funny because it's like imagine Dirty Harry having to try to like keep his cool while <laughs> right. like the Scorpio killer is like an in, the Japanese David Bowie being like in drag being like <laughs> I'm going to blow up everyone unless the Rolling Stones play.
1: Yeah, you know, exactly. like it's,
3: it's such a rid- it's inherently cool. ridiculous situation for him to have to keep a straight face through. It's incredible,
0: right? It's hard to, for him to be the straight man and be to appear so cool and so collected and calm like when just absolutely ridiculous cartoosh- cartoon characters are thrilled. Threatening you, and I love that contrast back and yeah, forth. Yeah, here's a
3: man dancing around to Bob Marley's "Get Up, Stand Up" as he's just built an atomic bomb, and yeah. it, that he's imagining himself like a fetus inside of it, like a little world that he can like <laughs> yeah. hold in his hand. Oh yeah, what
0: crazy imagery! That shot is wild, and I love too that it just gets brighter and brighter. Like it's like the the bomb is kind of taking over his personality a little bit. It's taking over really everything. It's just such a powerful weapon. Um and that's as he's dancing and singing into this pseudo microphone. It's and and again it comes that comes right after he's done the whole really slow, sweaty procedural thing. And then all of a sudden he's back to his kind of cartoonish performance and, and yeah, it's it's awesome to watch.
2: Bunta uh, Buntasugora's casting feels very critical too, because as a contrast to oh, Hello? Oh yep. Yep. Okay, sorry, it went so quiet that I wasn't sure. Okay. Oh no, we're Uh, But yeah, Buntasura's uh, casting feels so critical because, well, one, he's playing against type because he's usually cast in the Yakuza roles. Mm. But here in the late 70s, you know, he gets to play this hardline cop. Uh, You know, he he is this like stoic, very traditional uh, masculine Japanese man cast against, uh, you know, the Japanese David Bowie, as we said, This, this sort of flamboyant, disaffected youth. Uh, So that contrast becomes very important. And it's also uh, a a fun part of the plot, too, that comes up a few times, which is just Sugawar going, like, why did you choose me? Why? Like, not (laughs) knowing that it's Sawada who he met on the bus thing. He's like, why did you even bring me into this? I'm a homicide detective. I do not belong on this right. case at all. Yeah,
3: most of this movie is him being like, l- legitimately just being like annoyed at how like tedious this case is. And being like, <laughs> right. why do I have to talk to this insane man in his atom bomb? I don't give a shit. Let me solve like a grisly murder or something. Let yeah. me take down, viciously and take down like some some, some uh, guy who wants to talk to the emperor and is holding kids at gunpoint. You know, that right. I'm more comfortable there.
0: Yeah, that feels, I think it's like it feels more important to him in some regard. Um And it feels more more i guess i guess real because even though this guy is threatening you know just an unbelievably powerful weapon his motivations like we've said with with what he's saying to him over the phone baseball blah 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 is is just so silly so it's like he he's dealing with a he can
3: absolutely feel that like this guy is going super villain mode drunk with power over like (laughs) this leverage to extort and ransom the city of tokyo that this bomb gives this very lost like lonely kind of insane guy and he does, and who doesn't even know what he wants to demand like that's again he's thing doing I things f- like dressing like a pregnant woman so he can plant a bomb in the bathroom and call the cops on him on himself he's blackmailing uh the inspector that he supposedly like befriended during that hijacking um si- and that he's receiving
2: an award with in the middle of this that, for that's <laughs> yeah. a
3: hilarious scene when they go yeah. to receive an award together and you can practically see him like smirking being like what's going on? You, why do you think your case is tedious man yeah like you know i'm I'm a, I'm a cool guy like i just wanted to watch i just wanted to watch baseball games that's all i wanted to do and 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 the fact that also like not only is it silly but he's so like braggadocious almost about how like silly it is that, yeah, he, that he really yeah. is starting to feel himself. Think, he's rocking the sunglasses. He's walking around the city in slow motion and like he, his plaid I, shirt and jeans and cowboy boots. You know, <laughs> he,
2: he calls into a popular radio show and has the host ask the audience, what would you do with an atomic bomb? You can call yes, for ransom. Yeah. So he can get Played by ideas. Kimiko
3: Ikigami too from Nobuhiko Obayashi's house, which yeah, is gorgeous. obviously, you know, an all timer surreal Japanese horror film, but here she's playing the bubbly radio DJ personality who actually gets caught in like this weird like pop rock love triangle briefly between him and yeah. the, between the you know the, the the grizzled cop and the you know psycho uh, atomic bomber who's just like you know who he gets the idea for the rolling stones things from her show too right that mm-hmm. she's like doing a radio show segment about you know it's like welcome to the a bomb corner you know who has any weird you know he's like a little micro selection. they're like you know who who has any like weird requests for the atom bomb guy and you know all these people are like i like the one guy that's like i wouldn't do anything because dreams are better if they're unrealized.
2: yeah Um, and there's another guy just like i I would just blow it up and see what happens
3: like yeah yeah i would just i'd become the leader of a biker gang i'd move to morocco
2: (laughs) she calls the segment aladdin's a bomb like make your wish on the (laughs) a-bomb (laughs)
3: yep and then that that's when someone suggests what about if you made the rolling stones do a concert in in japan and then she likes that that is a good idea (laughs) yeah yeah Get us a Rolling Stones concert, you know, in between like a montage of like the inspector just like brooding in his office, or like, you know, he's, he basically thinks of himself as like Al Pacino and Heat, you know, he's like, he's <laughs> like, you know, working day and night practicing at the shooting range, you know, he's, you know, meanwhile, there's this like, you know, he's he's hunting this sick atomic bomb freak who's you know trying to ensure this like mutually assured destruction between the two of them, essentially. Yeah. Well,
2: and and, and Sawada is interesting too. Like, I think if modern viewers watch this movie, like the way Sawada presents himself when he's talking to Sugawara through the phone. Like he talks like the way a twenty twenty three anime villain talks now, you know, like he, <laughs> like he he's giving himself a gimmick. He calls himself number nine because he's like, oh, uh, there are eight nations that have nuclear bombs, and I I'm the ninth, so call me number nine. <laughs> and that's you know, awesome. when he, and when he calls uh, the the radio host zero, that's her name is zero. He's like, yeah, I'm I'm number nine, the number next to zero on the phone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Guy, so cool. smooth, man. So sick. <laughs> Holy shit.
3: What an aspirational character. He's just getting put into the, I, the canon. I do love <laughs> it,
0: that thought of him just being like, like naming all the nations with this power and him saying, I am now the ninth person just as an individual. That is kind of a, that's a gangster ass line. <laughs> it, it,
2: it is. And it's such a like, but it, it is like braggadociousness in those moments. It's such yeah. a great comparison to how pathetic he is outside of it. <laughs> totally, um, yeah,
3: Totally. But, the, so, the the second the radio host gets a glimpse of him and he's just like he's literally like I'm I'm walking away I'm out of here I can't deal with this yeah. I can't deal with this attention <laughs>
2: and and it's amazing too because there is a scene later in the movie where like, he says I am number nine and then there's a scene later where you see these uh these Japanese government guys standing next to the Japanese flag and one of them looks like he he's saying a line he's like. Individuals shouldn't have A-bombs, only nations should. And as he says that, he turns and looks directly into the camera with his hands on his hips. (laughs) (laughs) Like,
0: (laughs) It is such a deliberate thing. One of my favorite things is when he starts to get actually paranoid about being close to being caught. And there's this one moment where he he thinks that he's 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 almost caught and and he runs around the corner um, and just starts sprinting away because he, he really feels like he's in that moment and some guy like sneaks around him and kind of scares him a little bit and then it ends up just being a dude that um that he owns he, owes he a just loan owes on. money to and, yeah and and, and because <laughs> I'm coming that, to collect bitch yeah exactly <laughs> and realizing that he's not in any trouble anymore he's he, he like instantly reverts back to his i have power again and just starts mm-hmm. openly yes. mocking the guy and just being like nope no money ha 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 just laughing See, he's like around.
3: dude i don't owe you money i'm the atomic bomb guy what do you yeah. mean i could just blow us all up money doesn't mean shit right now. yeah yeah
0: and it's, it's all so of our debts disappear it's so yeah. interesting how quickly he goes from just totally terrified child to oh i'm the all-powerful number nine again and I, oh, it's oh, such same a same
3: deal when um when uh, zero is following him being like she, she starts to notice that like the the person who she keeps getting phone calls when there's a guy on the payphone sitting like across from her like outdoor public you know sort of like radio dj session and she's like i wonder if it's like that guy who's calling me so she follows him and you know at first he's very concerned you know he's like oh my god she's figured it out she knows who I am and but the last time she peers around the corner and he's got his hands on the building and he's literally sticking his ass out and he's like hey babe you know he's like got a boyfriend lover sugar daddy gigolo you know
2: (laughs) god he's cool (laughs) Uh, yeah uh, Hasegawa also said that Kiyoshi Kurosawa wrote the scene with the building like that was his idea I'm like, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm like awesome. him flirt, him flirting with her by going like, I'm holding this whole building up. You got to come over here and help me. <laughs> <laughs> what a lie. Kiyoshi
3: Kurosawa's used that one for sure. He's like, trust me, this works.
0: This is a really smooth line, boys. Oh yeah man. and then
3: and then obviously like leaning into like the the macho like you know sort of you know where he, he is the opposite of the detective where he is like the the macho criminal and there's this gorgeous image of him like making out in front of like the blood red sunset right in front of her and you know I think she at that point pulls at his hair and she pulls a little bit of it out which is some of our first indications that you know he's he's starting his health is starting to go by the wayside because of this situation but then he also just like throws her in the lake and walks away. And I guess he thinks that's really cool. And he oh, like yeah. walks away in slow motion, framed against the sunset, He's like this is the sickest thing a dude has ever done. <laughs>
2: it's that it's it's that duality to him. It's like exciting that he got the most popular DJ in town, but also he's already bored of it as soon as he gets it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's just <laughs> he's truly drunk with atomic power. <laughs> I yeah, well, And I, and I, and I love, too,
3: that 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 it, it, it's residual, right? Like it actually does start to affect her where she gets brought in to identify him. And she's obviously super pissed off at what he did. But at the same time, she doesn't want him caught. So when yeah. they actually pull up like images being like, was it this guy who, I, you know, attacked you? Was it this guy? She actually doesn't turn him in.
2: I am so curious if that was like the way that they showed her the photos was an actual method Japanese police did because I was curious like such too. a strange way where it's like, all right, we're going to mix this guy's hair, this guy's eyes and this guy's mouth and keep switching the body parts until we get our guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, I was like, if that is a method that is that's kind of wild, honestly. Yeah. We're, we're,
3: we, 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 we call this the Mister Potato Head method. Yes, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get to the bottom of what this guy looks like. He's <laughs> out there. We're gonna invent a guy <laughs> real quick. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and the important the important thing about him detachedly throwing her into the river is that it worked like she she falls in love with him enough to cover for him and counts all the hairs that she yanked out of his head and keeps them yeah there is something I, I took 36 hairs from you that day oh
0: there is something that she clearly finds like strangely attractive about him um that it's the I, confidence. It's the confidence yeah. of
3: a man with an atomic I, bomb. And Fellas, I, I, I can't this is the imagine, kind of confidence you need to radiate. I can't <laughs> well, imagine
0: that kind of confidence. Oh, my God. Well,
2: I, I, and I guess looking like Kenji Sawada in the 70s helps. That but, helps. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs>
0: totally. That flow is unbelievable.
3: Yeah. But but and, and what's funny, too, is that basically the rest of this turns into like more of like a procedural kind of like manhunt for him, essentially, while yeah. he is in a series of hilarious disguises with like big <laughs> facial hair. He's hiding out at one point in a guerrilla filmmaking style, like in a communist party, like parade <laughs> um, which is clearly they did not get permits for that. Um, and oh, uh, it, it make it, it makes that whole scene feel like a like a pulpy like conspiracy like assassination thriller. Like one, I was reminded a little bit of like Eastwood running around in the line of fire, which we covered not that long ago. But also, Jamie, you might have thought this too. Uh, Larry Cohen's God Told Me to oh, that totally. whole section where he guerrilla style filmed it during like the police parade in New York or whatever. That's what yeah. the sequence kind of feels like.
0: Oh yeah, a hundred percent. It has that kind of chaos to it too. A little little bit um one thing that I really find funny is when he gets to the parade and he calls them and it, it, basically it's just like, "Come investigate." He's <laughs> just like, "Come here and 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 almost look for me." It seems like like he's he's uh, he's getting he gets really cocky by by I, this. I, point. Well, I was
3: gonna say I actually struggled to start keeping track of his plan after a while. I oh, wasn't yeah. sure if it was meant to completely make sense or not because I know he's got two bombs and one of them's active and one of them is like a you threat, know it has enough radiation threat. to. Reed is having radiation, but like it's not like, uh, like he couldn't actually trigger it as a bomb. Yeah. And he's kind of like, tricking people by using both and and I think closer to the end he has sort of started trying to actually ransom the city for just like money like actually going like Bond villain mode and being like but, uh, no. what do guys do with this power uh cash <laughs>
2: but then the the money isn't even for himself like he just goes ah throw it into the city and let them all have it so I can run Yeah away cause again. a
0: riot in the parade yeah yeah it's just another game and it's interesting when you say cause a riot in the parade too They have that conversation eventually when he speaks to uh, Yamashita on the the roof, and this is just kind of connected, but he says that they set up the Rolling Stones concert just to entrap him, and that they would have no plans of actually having the band or anything like that, and they are knowingly going to cause a riot to get this guy as well. So it's just like, he's (laughs) created chaos really either way at this point. Um, The cops included, of course, but uh, just the way that they've gone about things, but... I found that to be kind of interesting. Like, everything is at this point has just been set up to be almost nonsense. Like, he doesn't really have a real motivation, the cops just need to catch him uh they're confused well, that's just it is, so at, at this point it, it is
3: kind of like a reactionary thing right where yeah. like the cop just has to respond to this like crazy outsider countercultural force that is just taking over the city this hysteria this movement right. and he's like he's like you know i can't fucking be having this shit in my city man like i'm i just you know a carjacker whatever i can handle that shit but this is like this is actually destroying the fabric of like japanese society is almost how the cop has to read this right and that's why he, they're willing to go to such extremes
1: mm-hmm. to
3: take this guy down, including what I, I I cannot stress enough is I think one of the most insane uh, hijacking uh, heist slash. Cop car chase sequences of the 1970s, <laughs> oh, which I yeah. do not say lightly. I know. Like, there's a lot of great car chases. There's a, great there's a lot of great gunfights. There's a lot of great manhunt set pieces in the 1970s. This is arguably one of the ones where I went, How much did this cost? Yeah. I was real. like, I don't, I, th- this is 2.5 hours. And I was sitting there going, They waited this long to get to. Like, genuinely, like, we're talking beyond bullet. We're talking beyond, like, like this is almost like if Seijun Suzuki got to make, like, a Burt Reynolds Gator movie or something is what we're <laughs> talking about. The levels of what's about to go down in this whole sequence where he hijacks a fast car, a deliberately the fastest car he can find. Hell yeah. Him and the radio host... um, are bent on sort of like retrieving and returning his uh one of his his atomic bombs basically like Bonnie and Clyde style. They break into a police department to steal it back where he's g- full guns a blazing in a monster mask
1: yes, which then yes.
3: triggers the cop car chase where they start fo- following them through the entire, you know, and it's full helicopter shots of oh, the city, yeah. they're swerving, it's beautiful. flipping, you know,
0: so like maybe shots of cars of them, behind them. them. There's like 20 Nate. cop cars just like following them the whole time. And the girl at one point is going through the rooftop doing like a, a report of some kind or whatever. And like it's just, it is such a wild image. It's, Amazing. Yeah, they're
3: shots from the point of view of the helicopter. They're shots from the point of view of the car looking up at the helicopter that's like driving kind of close. Like it's just—it's mm-hmm. one of the most like hysterical and like in in insane cop car chases that I've I've seen. And results, and we'll get into it into like you know some in actually insane stunts like some explosive yeah. fireball shit, cops flying over vehicles being absolutely ripped to shreds. It's crazy. A car they being do decapitated
0: th- in a way. <laughs>
2: (laughs) Yeah, they they do that scene in samurai movies where two people pass quickly and then something happens to one of the people, but it's cars.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's I think it happens to uh, Yamashita's car so he has to like he does the classic it's all, this is kind of out of like a fucking cartoon or a more animated uh, action movie where he ducks and the whole roof is just taken off and then he comes back up and he's fine and he just continues on with the chase. He's just driving a convertible <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah, but yeah, you're exactly. watching something that comes from like it looks like just a very authentic grounded crime thriller but you have things like that still happening in the midst of it and it, I mean that's been the whole movie but it, they just keep finding different ways to to do it it's really impressive
2: the- the most insane shot in a what what has you know as you said been a like police procedural thriller thing is bunta Sugawara hanging off of the bottom of a helicopter <laughs> with a gun I like, shooting that. at shooting
3: at the the flipping car that kenji sawada is in <laughs> yeah. down the hill <laughs> oh
0: my god
3: you're like dude he's crashing already you're not gonna you're gonna shoot him while like it's not it's not yeah. actually not gonna even help you very much it's like he's just dangling from the edge of the helicopter this is after Bunta crazy. already
0: crashes and then runs away from an exploding vehicle. And the moment he does that, yes. the helicopter comes down and he's like, all right, now I'm on the helicopter. <laughs> I'm What's riding the like? helicopter.
3: Yeah, you know it legitimately reminded me of in Branded to Kill. Um, when, uh, is, it, is it Joe Hashida is the actor in that? Um, uh, when he... Uh, he rides the blimp in the background of that one scene <laughs> oh, right. where you're just like, there's like no reason for him to do that. It's almost like something Bugs Bunny would do that, well, you know, yeah. but it's just like, there he goes, you know, there, there goes <laughs> and, Bunta. He's on the helicopter now. And, and it's, in,
2: it's in how they shoot the helicopter scene too. Cause it's not like they just cut to it and he's casually doing it. They have him come over the, they, they have the helicopter rise <laughs> over the horizon above a hill so that you can see him. Like it's a dramatic so, reveal of him dangling.
0: Yeah, it's it, it's so, it's still so cool. That's the thing. It's so over the top mm-hmm. that there's obviously some silliness to it, but it's also so fucking badass. <laughs> So you're just constantly. Well, getting I mean, concerts. shit,
3: man, S- a 70s car hitting a ramp and just getting crazy air like you see the cars get in this doing oh, yeah. the crazy fireball explosions that bunta has got to run away from Like pile you know, cars doing the flips and rolls and pile ups that they're all doing. It, it is again. And, and it does feel deliberately that they're being like, you know, this is uh, this is genre movie exaggeration to a practically animated Degree Because they want to show you that this is a this is a comically absurd vision of, you know, the war between sort of like an aimly aimless, like 70s youth and a more sort of like authoritative pre atom bomb, like old guard, old world kind of character. But they they really do want you to be like to feel that despite the comic absurdity of it, that there is some. You know there is some danger and consequences and tangibility to a war that these kind of characters would have, and that's where you get into. You know, it 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 does feel kind of you know. By the time we get to the like the very end of this, it does kind of feel tragic and a little bit kind of like we do see her die too. Um, For like, foreboding in terms of like, you know, like the end of the world is here, like the 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 apocalypse is kind of here in a way. And, you know, we're speaking to each other in like these old terms of like a cop and a criminal cat and mouse thing. And it's like that's not actually the, the world we live in anymore. You know, like that used to be what cops used to do, you know, yeah. in, in, in this case now, you know, in a post uh, post Oppenheimer world, it looks a little different.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: And he starts getting fucking crazy too. I will say, like he, like that that scene where he just throws the radioactive shards into the public swimming pool and just oh like kills God. a bunch of kids <laughs> and fucking crazy. Was that?
0: I'm, I'm, I thought I'm, that was a vision. Was that actually him doing that?
3: I thought I, it was him actually doing it, but it is also so insane that if I went back, if we went back and someone said that that was just him dreaming it, I would believe you. But it's I got, like I, 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 bought, I took it at face value that he was like just doing that and he was going crazy
2: it's at this a point.
0: Horrifying image, yeah.
2: I'm also not sure if we're meant to take the the body in the middle as being him floating among the bodies. Oh,
0: mm. really? be- I didn't because pick up because on there's
2: that. there's one person on their back and the rest are all face down and I'm like and I wondered this time is like is that meant to be him floating among the bodies and maybe I'm wrong, but- Oh,
0: interesting. It is a quick flash. I'd now I kind of want to go back and and rewatch just that like that minute cuz cuz that would be intriguing. But yeah, it's, I mean, that, that stood out but, to me, that scene where he, it just flashes back and it's nothing but floating bodies like instantly. It's just it's as, terrifying. Yeah.
1: As well,
3: he, well and, and that image drives him to be like, I'm going to go to the Rolling Stones concert and take my bomb and I'm going to fucking blow everyone up. You know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. it's like he, this is the mindset he's in. Yeah. Well, and,
2: yeah. and as, but as he's poisoning the pool too, he keeps yelling, get out of the pool. Almost like he's trying to give them a second to save themselves. But he's yeah, doing, I feel he's saying like that he's, after he's done it.
0: Right, I feel like he's he's at the point in his in his mind where he knows that he's gone too far, but he still would like to go back a little to warn people so that they could be saved, but he's just he's too far gone. So the next scene <laughs> or the next shot that you get is of all of the dead bodies. Like he's trying, he's like get out of the pool, but it's just it's just too late. It's not going to happen. He's gone way too fucking far. So yeah, I yeah. I thought that that was that was great too. And and I think when Zero dies in front of him, There is. That seems to be, like, one of the first moments, besides his own, you know, being caught, where he feels like there was a a consequence that has happened right in front Mm -hmm. of him, and something he has to now really realize that he kind of brought this upon her, so... Um, I don't there's not he has a, a reckoning that Mike Hammer doesn't have yeah yeah a there's little a little bit there's a
2: very there's a very brief flash of sadness too when his cat eats the plutonium and his apartment yes, dies but then true. they like but like they go from his like second of sorrow to him Tarzan yelling and swinging on a rope on the school ground yes. <laughs> like a second later so <laughs> which also comes back
3: baby yes. I couldn't fucking believe that that came back
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's foreshadowing I couldn't believe it <laughs> Oh, my God. (laughs) It's
3: it's genuinely it's 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 crazy because this final sequence is him, um, you know, going to the Rolling Stones concert that that he has set up that we, you know, we find out from uh, Bunta is like not actually taking place, but they are, you know, pretending it is and they have the roaring crowd. there all waiting for um, the Rolling Stones to get on stage. Um, But uh, he decides that, you know, he's going to say that he's planted the bomb somewhere. He's going to take uh, the inspector up to the roof where he's going to have like a classic, like seventies crime movie rooftop standoff. You know, this we've seen this a couple times. I was thinking about like some of the roof chases we've done, like across 110th street or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and he, he handcuffs him. He's got him at gunpoint. We're listening to like, sort of like the ticking bomb in like what essentially is like a bowling ball bag. (laughs) And, uh, I couldn't believe the incredible framing on this sequence of them on the Tokyo with the, the Tokyo skyline behind them, the shot reverse shot of them, like both disrupting each other's like bodies with the back of their heads. So you can't, you know, they're, 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 they kind of like form one being in the
0: frame and stuff. It's so cool. And they're also like, you can't see what they're sitting on or the ground whatsoever. It almost seems like they're floating above uh, Japan a little bit as they're having the conversation. And and you
3: can just hear the ambient roar of like the concert goers below, like waiting for the concert. That's not coming. And And like, that's when they get into into that. Yeah. yes and that he's going to explode you're like oh you're just going to explode all these people who were doing a riot waiting for the Rolling Stones <laughs> yeah. it's such like a weird conception of events and that's when they get into their conversation on like the why did you choose me and he's like you know I thought we could fight together but you're just a trained dog you know you, yeah. you're, you're not willing to you're not willing to change and and with, with the times you know like that kind of attitude about it and uh, I like that he's like you know I'm a trained dog who's protected this city for 30 years and he's like like a city that's already dead, you know? Like mm-hmm. these guys, this is like the a philosophical, you know, the philosophical aspects of the cat and mouse are kind of coming to the fold as we get into an incredibly messy, <laughs> just like 70 scuffle. Of, like, the cop trying to, like, wrestle the bomb away while he's cuffed and, like, Makoto shooting him. Dual-wielding six-shooters, like a fucking cowboy or some shit. So much screaming and, like, squib work going off as the inspector is taking bullets like an inhuman fucking machine. Yeah, I was going
0: to (laughs) say, all being taken by Bunta, who is just taking every single squib everywhere. Chest, leg, arms. (laughs) And it's so funny because you think he's being killed, I would say four to five times and he returns every single time still with the same strength he had before. And the movie is fully aware of what they're doing at this point where it's like his determination as this inspector is has just overcome all of the just, just like what what a human would be actually capable of going through physically, um, and yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's, he's like dirty, dirty, hairy Terminator style. Yeah, he's insane. like, I got this. <laughs> when he came back like the fourth time after, and there is a shot. It, it's the the cameras above them. He's looming over him with the gun, and he shoots him. Boom! Right in the chest, and you're like, that's <laughs> it. That's the definitive kill shot. And then he's and yeah, he's he bleeding up out again. clearly, and yeah. this is probably the fourth time he's gotten up. It was I was losing my mind. I just could not uh, believe. Yeah, and, and
3: then and then he picks him up and tries to throw him over the edge, like legitimately, like With mutually assured destruction too. style. He's, he's like, like, we're I'm, both going down, yeah, baby.
0: We're going yeah. down together. It's fucking. Oh my god! And then somehow that turns into like a cartoon where. Uh, 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 keto that, that's when he Tarzan
3: style yes. he hits the power line and hits the tree and literally swings from like the power line essentially and his, Sur- you know he, he he survives this altercation the way that like an, an 80s
0: action movie you know star would yes like vine swing yeah it's like and at the end of the killer <laughs> with the baby I think yeah. that's the one or hard-boiled am I getting I'm getting one of the two confused there Hard, Hard- hard-boiled, hard-boiled yeah hard-boiled um, it's it's kind of like that. It's just really ludicrous, way over the top. It's even a little more cartoonish than that because they don't have like the the giant explosion and the, and and all that happening and the slow motion. It's it's honestly pretty uh, pretty fast the way everything happens. It's, it it kind of shocks you. Um, and
2: they cut to Sugawara's corpse still grasping at the air, yes. like still
0: trying to catch him. Like. <laughs> oh my god! Just cannot be killed. Oh, even, in de- even in even, even in even in, in death, he can't be killed. He's determined. Yes, he's it. Honestly, like I don't think that's it's actually the the shot because I think it's just a close up of his 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 still hands that are trying to grasp the the bomb and and uh, and and Kido. But there's also something for some reason in my head where you see his eyes still open, dead but open and staring into his soul still, because that's just the kind of energy he gives off, like. He's gonna come back as a zombie after this. It's awesome. It's so good.
2: The last yep. standing sentinel of Japanese tradition has failed, but he'll,
0: <laughs> yeah. but he'll grab
2: you if you get close enough. Yes.
3: Yeah. No. Like that. And and that's so clearly like symbolically what it is. Like when you get um when you get. Uh, Kenji Sawada just like wandering back into the city, just like aimlessly, and and it feels like he's actually kind of lost something because it's like oh like what does a countercultural figure mean in a world where like you know. Like the psycho rebel fucking won. There is no yeah. old guard authority figure to resist mm-hmm. anymore. There's just like this ticking a, time bomb on the world that, like, I started and now we're all going down. Kind of that's what that's and, kind of the feeling I got from well, the last shot.
0: And he won and, by and a the, series of mishaps. <laughs> like, even him, <laughs> even him falling onto the wire and being saved had really nothing to do with his skill. He was just at the right place, at the right time. He even, when he like lands and gets up, he's kind of like, Holy shit! I'm alive. <laughs> like he's just—he's almost shocked himself. It's uh—it's very funny to have you know like that's what—that's what's gonna fight on and continue on a little bit. There's a little bit of clumsiness to it that I think is funny.
2: And and the generational aspect was important to Hasegawa. He brought up that the uh that the uh bus hijacking scene at the beginning is supposed to be like Sugawara disposing of the generation previous to his. Oh. Okay. And that- and then, you know, and then being disposed of himself by the incoming generation. Like it, he called it grandfather, you know, father kills grandfather, son kills father.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Cause like the way that the guy has taken out the, 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 the guy that's holding up the bus, it's kind of the same way that, uh, that Boonta goes out where it's tons of squibs. Just he's, he's shot yeah. up like crazy. It's very, very violent, um, on purposely. So, so yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, I agree. Very cool.
3: Oh, yeah. uh, if we're pivoting, I think towards uh, reductive
0: well, uh, rating I, round. I oh, think the ending, like where he just walks down the 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 the, uh, the street and it's still ticking. And they have this yes. kind of like the. F- I love too how casual he's back to his kind of confident self that you see at the beginning. It kind of ends the way it begins, where it has the ticking clock, and then a bomb goes off, and then it shows him like blowing the bubble gum. Um, and he's I, kind I, of. I do cool like the guy. change
3: in his face though it really yes. does feel like it's like oh like what now like yeah, it, you he, know he like I've, this,
0: like we I feel like he has a confidence to him but there is an aimlessness to it you know what I mean yeah like he feels confident that he still has the weapon and he kind of overcame the authorities but th- I think him doing the freeze frame and then you hear an explosion really implies that there's it's just aimless and even if we're not actively presently seeing the explosion it's going to happen at one point because this guy doesn't have any real motivation or mission in any way shape or form oh yeah well i mean
3: regardless of anything he he and delightfully so for large portions of this movie but he lit a fuse yeah Mm -hmm. like yeah that's it you know like
2: uh, (laughs) honestly the the freeze frame may be the moment the bomb just goes off like Mm -hmm. it's
0: yeah, uh, that and, would be hilarious. I think uh, you can interpret it both in both ways uh cuz it does seem like it's just uh, it's uh, the way that I was a little confused by if it actually goes off was just that would mean I guess he's completely gone to the side of like I'm just going to kill people and there's not even a there, there's not even a dynamic of like power over the authority that's has been overpowering me or counter revolution it just feels completely sadistic at that point so it feels a little strange given his character i, I don't know see, maybe I, yeah.
2: I don't know that i see it as sadism so much as i see it as like complete aimlessness like oh, he okay. doesn't yeah like there like there was no plan there was yeah what do, I, yeah, like what what do a, I do
0: with the bomb i just set it off that's what you yeah. <laughs> that's what you would or, do I don't know. Or I, I, the, that's the, that's the
3: function of a
0: bomb yeah you know right. <laughs> like yeah yeah i or or i just don't even stop it maybe it's already set to go off you know like right it's just yeah, cuz it is ticking. It, it it does kind of feel like it's just it's inevitable. It's going to get to zero. It's going to blow up and and that's kind of where he's at. So, yeah, no, I I could agree that it's it's less sadistic and more Well, and
3: and but and, and it does to me feel
0: like he's, you know, he has
3: Effectively dispatched with the old world, the old guard, the pre atomic world. He's walking into this new countercultural future that he has, you know, brought about by yeah, his ignited. actions in Tokyo.
1: Totally. But that's
3: just it, is that, and then it, the moment of realization is like, Oh, that what is that future actually? I didn't actually think it through. I never thought through what my demands were. I never I didn't make any changes yeah. that, you know, were actually political in any way. Like I just got baseball on TV. I got a <laughs> fake concert set up. Like I didn't actually doing anything. And then I feel like the realization is that it's like, no, he's actually kind of doomed the future in a way with his actions as well. So yeah. it's like, yeah, you know, because he's created this hysteria, this paranoia around obviously this incredibly violent device that is killing him and driving him insane as
0: we've seen over the course of the movie right yeah he even
2: he built the bomb just because he could and that's all that mattered
0: yeah yeah and even has this acceptance when he's walking of like he starts to grab onto his hair again and he's really just pulling out just just huge chunks and instead of feeling worried he's just kind of like yep this is it's almost like this is who I am now like I've I've embraced the power of the bomb
3: yeah he yeah well he learned to stop worrying
0: and cuddle the bomb, right? <laughs> right Snuggle yes, the bomb. Exactly. You know?
3: He's got it. It's in his arms. <laughs>
0: exactly. What a love story.
3: I guess we, we did we didn't really bring that up, but I guess yeah, if we're talking like a nuclear slapstick satires, uh mm-hmm. Doctor
0: Strange love baby. Totally. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of does fall in with that a little bit. If I hadn't so, some, gotten some Kiss
2: Me Deadly, that would have been the pairing. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm just some of that sort of
3: like taking something so deadly seriously serious in terms of like actual political topic. Like, yeah, like uh, you know this sort of like generational conflict between these two different uh, men. But again, doing it in a you know sort of comic fashion. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's 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 something there. Um, but Man. yeah, if we are, I
2: think pivoting Sorry.
3: towards reductive rating round or we got more we got more coming just just one more little
2: thing uh because okay. we, because we brought up lynn schrader and all this stuff uh i i yep. did think i did think you might find it funny to know that um one of the first people that uh that uh Hasegawa had read the script was his mahjong buddy who just happened to be in Yo- yukio mishima's private uh militia Oh and, wow! And, and and allegedly, that's one of the reasons he felt confident uh, filming in public because his militia buddy was just like, "Ah, if anybody bothers you, let us know and we'll come by and beat them up. <laughs> Don't even worry about it." Damn. So, but like, so you know, I he doesn't he doesn't connect that to Schrader in any way, but it's just a funny thing of like everything through this kind of partnership somehow flows back to Mishima.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Oh my god. Very right, cool. Well, I think pivoting towards reductive rating round on The Man Who Stole the Sun, this gets a very solid um, for uh, for me. I felt like there were portions of it where I was a little, like confused by it and i wasn't sure exactly what i was watching yeah. but once i got kind of like a vision of the whole scope of it and mm-hmm. so much of what Hasegawa was like actually you know like the kind of demons he was seemed to actually be kind of getting out of himself about you know some of the feelings about the radiation poison stuff that we were talking about that sort of obsession some of the stuff with you know leonard schrader coming to him with such a stupid premise but then being like what if we leaned into the stupidness and made something that's actually weirdly kind of Cogent and and kind of, you know, thoughtful in its like nuclear anxiety satire and also just clearly having a gleeful blast with the hard-boiled 70s sort of like cat and mouse sort of like cop rivalry stuff. And again, one of the most insane premises, I think, and log lines I've ever seen anyone bring on this show. Japanese Travis Bickle uh, (laughs) holding Tokyo hostage with a homemade atomic bomb that he snuggles in bed um, (laughs) and, you know, gets into a generational conflict with an old guard, like Dirty Harry style authoritarian figure. And uh, I was like, I don't like this is just one of the like most bizarre things I've ever heard of. And also, apparently, this was like a pretty successful film in Japan, like in terms of critical acclaim, oh, awesome. in terms of box
2: office well, and even bo- like box office. It didn't do as well. Uh, that this is no, I, I, I heard that
3: it, I thought I read that it, it did do. Okay. Uh, ha- but Hase- it,
2: Hasegawa said it didn't do well enough for him to like be able to materialize uh... more projects. Oh, okay. Um, well,
3: yeah, I mean, to be fair, I mean, they fired Suzuki for turning in Branded to Kill, and that wasn't two and a half hours. So, but, you know, but, I, g- I guess, fair enough.
2: But Hasegawa was very proud that it like has subsequently made like 10 best Japanese films of the year awards in modern times. You know, mm-hmm. or, I'm sorry, 10, yeah. 10 best Japanese films of all time awards. In modern times he's very yeah, proud of like, that, like like like
3: so. in Japan among Japanese filmmakers this is like a very well-regarded like best of the 70s like uh, Japanese film
2: yeah uh, Matt Matt Alt, who writes a lot about like Japanese culture in English uh said that this was the first movie his Japanese wife showed him to convince him that Japanese films weren't all just anime and Godzilla she was like this is a serious movie to watch like, oh man p- Hell p- yeah. this would, would have that would have been
0: wild for this to be one of your first Japanese films <laughs> That's rad. Yeah. That's so awesome.
3: But I, but, but, but I, I gotta be honest, like, like this has like a lot of great, like genre movie bona fides and cult factor to it, despite obviously so much of the, you know, sort of like personal elements in it and the strange elements in it there there's a lot at play here that's just like generally enjoyable as a genre film which surprises me that it doesn't have like more of a reputation in like the west like how does this not have like a like an arrow video blu-ray or something how are more yeah. people like not talking there, about this one it's, it, why, i was why, a little surprised
2: why is there no disc for this i had to watch it on archive.org <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's what no- i mean like like
3: there, yeah. th- this is like still undervalued and like underseen today so i don't know it's it's It it, it seemed weird to me that this has like so such a little reputation, despite how like ambitious and weird and and fun it is, how stylistically engaging it is, like how well it's doing the various, you know, sort of apocalyptic, uh, you know, uh, you know genre movie elements that it's doing like like the ending too i wanted to say one thing that i forgot to bring up the the idea of like this character being uh sort of like poisoned or transformed and like marching towards this ugly future it made me think of something like tetsuo the iron man a little bit too sure yeah. or, um the the mix of goofy absurdity with like deadly serious consequences or political ideas uh what was that uh katsuhiro otomo movie we did jamie do you remember what the the, the akira guy his the live action film we did of his in the apartment complex i don't know why I'm
2: blanking on his oh, name. Yeah. Is it World Apartment Horror? World that, Apartment that Horror. It, that was yeah.
3: another thing I, I, I thought about a little bit. I even thought about Takeshi Miike, Uh, In terms of some of the crazy sort of like tonal fluctuations that he that he does. So I was like, there's so much like, you know, Japanese genre history in this film. And it's deployed so well. And if you're willing to get on the wavelength of just some of the hilariousness of the concept that both filmmakers agreed was delightfully stupid, uh, they realized it in like the best, most tangible way. I think you could have possibly have done that. And it does feel romantic. Sometimes it does feel tragic it's funny and genuinely and so I don't know I I really took to this and I I can't wait to rewatch it honestly and show it to someone else this feels like a prime like I gotta be honest that story you just told Casey this feels like a prime like you got this is a a show someone you know kind of movie can you believe what the fuck you're watching
0: (laughs) yeah that's the thing I think like I'm also I'm also gonna uh, give it a four. I think this is incredibly well-made. It's one of those films that, like I saw the length in like two and a half hours, and then I'm seeing all of these different sequences, the the, the bomb being made, the the use, like the different usages of, of both performers in the sense that he obviously understands how um, Japan and the world would would kind of look at them and uses them within the characters. I think that's amazing. And then I see that highway sequence, and I'm just like, I was over and over again thinking, how have I not heard of this before? This seems so huge and and ambitious and just incredibly well made on a technical level. Like, I can't believe this is the guy's second film and then he just stopped. Um, he it's, it's, it's just yeah. one of those those rare movies that when you sit down and watch it, you just cannot, you, you really can't understand how this isn't coming from somebody that's like super prolific and had an, an incredibly big budget and backing and everything like that. It's oh, just, it also, by the way, so I, d- I didn't see ambitious. this until
3: right now. Edited by Akira Suzuki, the guy who edited Tampopo and Branded to Kill. Oh, by the way. Sick. Some, <laughs> there you
0: go. Well, he does, yeah, you he go. does a great job. There's some amazing sequences that are all. Honestly, very different, but somehow. Oh, all the bomb cohesive. making
3: montage, all the crazy editing in that Mission Impossible nuclear reactor heist sequence where like the floor almost looks like a bond layer with all the lights coming out of it and shit. There's, yeah. there's some incredible imagery in this over its 2.5 hours and it saves one of the craziest action chases you've ever seen in a movie for the end that you're like it, it shifts styles and modes every yeah, second this, you're like what
0: the fuck this does feel like you're watching like 10 different crime films at the same time but somehow that <laughs> it's it's not in a way Clockwork that's orange style yeah, it, yeah yeah and it's it's not um it's not in a way that's awkward or uh disorienting at least to the point that you feel Kind of you know confused and and kind of thrown. I was back. like, it is disorienting, but yeah, deliberately but, right. Like. And then <laughs> once you, the thing is, it's kind of built so once you have all of its two and a half hours of context, things start like do make more sense if they don't initially make sense. Because there were there was a couple moments in the like once I hit like hour thirty, hour forty five, where I was just like, is there like are we leading to something here, or is it just a little bit more aimlessness? But then once you get to the the high speed chase and and just kind of his. Really, like once you realize that that is kind of the point, a little bit his aimlessness, it, it starts to make a little bit more sense in that way. Um, but yeah, I think this is great. Highly recommend. Four out of five. Yeah, for you, Casey.
2: Uh, I brought this on for a reason. This is a five out of five for me. Uh, I think yeah. this Let's is. Go. I think this is anarchic filmmaking at its best. It <laughs> yeah. takes it takes gigantic swings and lands almost all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am I'm fascinated by this film. I'm fascinated that it even exists. Uh, I hope yep. that it reaches a wider audience. Uh, and, uh, you know, and as I said earlier, too, I'm, I'm also just really pleased with uh, with Kazuhiko Hasegawa as a as a, you know, as a film force, like even though he doesn't get to direct a lot of other stuff, you know, he he does, you know, help generate a circle of young directors in Japan that have kind of rippled out and had their own influences, people like uh, Sogo Ishii, Shinji Somai, uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa and all these other like people who do very interesting both art house and genre works. Uh, so I think his, his presence is still felt, but I think people need to, this, this film is prime for rediscovery. Uh, it is, yes. it is shameful that no boutique Blu-ray label or something has like advertised the hell out of this because this is a hit. Yeah. Like this, this will catch like wildfire once the right company puts their label on it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I agree. But, you know, use that to your advantage. Watch it on archive.org. Go find it. Just enjoy it. It's I think that's what I think that's what, uh, I think that's what uh, the characters in this film would have wanted you to do. Just go go find it and build it yourself if no one's going to deliver the uh, the ingredients to you. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it's a
2: true. I, I also
3: gem. need to get a copy of this poster one of my favorite new movie posters of all time oh, yeah it's this, cool. like crazy psychedelic image of like the world turned into like this atomic painting over the city of tokyo and he's holding his atom bomb in one hand and like he's got the cowboy boots shirtless jeans pointing a gun directly down like the lens essentially it's uh L, it's, it's yeah it's great this yeah, is exactly awesome. like he he is looking exactly like if Travis Bickle was holding an atom bomb. So, you know, this yeah. is it's and the movie delivers on that image.
0: <laughs> it definitely does in more ways than one. But yeah, I, I
2: I adore the man who stole the sun and I'm I'm just so glad that we got an opportunity to discuss it. So thank you very much, slezoids, and I, I hope you and your audience uh help this movie spread and reach more people.
3: Yeah thanks for bringing so, it too. to thanks us. for exactly thanks for bringing it too because we we wouldn't have watched it uh you know we might have watched it at some point but we definitely you know we we sped that process up so that we could talk about it with you and i'm glad that we did yeah um but that is going to wrap it up for this week's episode that was kiss me deadly from 1955 as well as the man who stole the sun from 1979 um uh uh, you just usually the part of the show, actually, Casey, where we we have you plug anything if you've got anything to plug while you're here. What's going on in Casey's world?
2: Uh, I'm I'm holding on to Twitter like a nuclear bomb <laughs> that's making me ill. Um so snuggling
3: up, getting yeah, radiation poisoning. Yeah, yeah, I get it.
2: Yeah, but that that you know, so so but I so what I've told everybody is like I don't know where I'm going to end up uh online in the future. So I've just kind of squatted on everything as Minovsky article. You can send me an email at Minovsky Article at gmail.com. <laughs> you can listen to my old episodes of Sleezoids. You can, you know, yeah. That's true. You, you'll you'll well, you're, fi- you're, you're, you'll find you're me. are on Letterboxd kind of too,
3: right? Doing uh, doing some doing some stuff over there, maybe.
2: I I, I the only thing I do right now is Letterboxd boxes read uh, other people's reviews so, so i you know i okay, I, I keep i enough. keep up with what y'all are up to but you know maybe i'll yeah. start maybe i'll start using it i i need a different platform that's where
3: i am <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah start start writing some reviews and recommending some movies like the man who stole the sun yeah, yeah. so by yeah. So, so by the time i
2: but by the time I come back two years from now onto uh, the show, I'll, I'll hopefully have a different vocation to let you know about. But yeah, in the meantime, email me at manovskyarticle at gmail.com and just look for me, whatever your favorite platform is, and maybe I'm there.
3: All right. Thanks. Hell yeah. (laughs) yeah. Uh, For our listeners, we are going to be back in one week's time where we are going to be wrapping up November with your patron voted episode where we have uh, you folks nominate the double feature and vote for it over on the Patreon. Uh, You guys chose Touch of Evil from 1958, directed by Orson Welles, as well as LA Confidential, mm. uh, directed by Curtis Hansen, obviously adapting James Elroy from 1998. So that is going to be our big, massive wrap up to Noir Vember. And then in two weeks' time, over on the main feed, we have a very special returning guest. Uh, who has brought us a hilariously uh, <laughs> named double feature. I don't know if this is actually going to be a hilarious uh, double feature or not, <laughs> but they are two movies with the exact same name. This is maybe one of the first gimmick uh, pairings I've ever seen done this way, and there might actually be some thematic or uh, uh, or plot we'll you know, connections. I, just, I haven't seen either movie yet. We're going to be talking about one, one I've been really meaning to get around to, Night of the Demon, Oh, from 1957, yeah. directed by Jacques Tur- Turner, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm very excited about because I love uh, Out of the Past. I love I Walked with a Zombie. Uh, so I'm very excited to talk about some Turner on the show. And we're going to be pairing that with Night of the Demon from <laughs> 1980, directed by James C. Wasson, which I have not seen, but from what I understand is like a Sasquatch like like horror film. Let's
0: go. I can show my brother. He loves Sasquatch. Let's do this.
3: Yeah, so so this is like some. I mean, the the poster literally looks like 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 an evil cannibal Bigfoot. Um, Fuck yeah. so let's go. No idea what the connective tissue is, other than they <laughs> both have the exact same name, Knight of the Demon. So we are going Knight of the Demon mode in uh, two weeks time. Sweet. So that's what you can look forward to over on the main feed. But
0: uh, that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much uh, for listening, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy, everybody.